Uh, Hello and welcome to Too Rash, Too Unadvised, Definitely Something, Perhaps the Stars. My name is Liam Nolan. Mine's Wero Kabuki. And I'm with a Martyr Complex. And today we're discussing Terra Ignata. If you'd like us any questions coming on the show, please feel free to reach out to us through our show at gmail.com. If you want to check the most no spoilers, please help support us more importantly on our Patreon. With that out of the way, and many thanks to our Lord and our Savior, Ada Palmer. And a model tarrant. Well, of course, kill. that I have that one on tape. <laughs> <laughs> Which part of it? The part where you threaten murder. Yes. That's true. Against a real person this time, too. And on the live show. Excellent but- choice, Martyr. <laughs> Walmer has previously not done the I'm going to murder this person vow. And also, you have done real person, just never with the last name as well. We've done real people. Um, West. Swear not to kill. Um, I, I forget. I think it's been everyone. I would have no, insisted. No. There There's was an exception. Call. There's one person who I, I sw- don't swear to kill. It was I someone. Like, oh, it was Jalen Gilbreaker. Oh, Jalen Gilbreaker. I sat here. I think no, 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 no. I no, I did Jalen. I think it might be Carlisle. I think I didn't. Swear I think to it was Carlisle. Carlisle because it was specifically about. She a was such a good girl. Yeah, she she specifically saved the wolf like a second time that chapter or whatever, and it's like, yeah, let's not. For weeks, I swore that our Lord and Savior was Carlisle Foster, and you're telling me you weaseled out? No, on the one one that was um, the Carlisle Foster saved the world. Carlisle Foster saved the world. Which, by the way, when you're looking at like, I knew this, an ebook or an audio book. And you're just looking at the list of chapters, which is a thing that happens sometimes in audiobooks and ebooks, and you're like, how Carlisle Foster saved the world. I guess that's a thing that's going to happen in this book. Once Not and I one of these titles that. is as bad as a Dragon Ball Z title. <laughs> oh the Battle God. of Ingolstadt is pretty bad. Although it's not what you think it is. It's but it's like, because there's gonna be, it is, it's like pretty clear what's happening. But, like, if you haven't gotten to the part of the book that's, like, by the way, Gordian, <laughs> would you like to know that the, the true villain was academia all along? Uh, it will be a bit of a shock. Also, you know, finding out immediately as I open the book my prediction about uh, a chapter called The Rage of Achilles before chapter uh, 24 ends was just immediately blown out of the water by chapter 25 being the wrath of Achilles. I'm like, God damn it! Oh, you were so one off. <laughs> one off. I was, um, I was off by one for a reason. Uh, I wonder what our, comp- what our relative scores are. I don't know. You gave me credit for Cornell Mason dying for a stupid reason. Yeah. Of course. You got super credit for that. Yeah, yeah. People still don't know how to evaluate my list. Really? Uh, the discussion in the spoiler channel back when the Terragnota Discord had, uh, someone stated, Martyr's predictions are really hard to grade. 
Really? This is, of course... Yeah. I went the, over the list, my list, which is a, much of your list. It's just the entirety of your list. And I thought, yeah, my predictions are, are pretty easy to grade. There is also the fun uh, attributes, which now Liam can go read all the things that people have been saying about these books in the Terragnota Discord server at long last. Yes. It'll be very fun to see how many And look at all reading. the fan art. I guess that and, too. And look at the I calendar. I have fan art for you that I, I ha obtained and then I forgot to give to you. Uh, Is it the Sexy Martin Guildbreaker fan art? <laughs> I mean, every photo that Ataglan makes of Martin, of Martin Guildbreaker is sexy. Uh, but not the specific one you're thinking of? Okay, look, I'll, I'm biting. What is it? Oh god, I have to go find it now? What? No, because that will be terrible content for an audio live stream. Uh, we can put the picture up, I think. D is that ethical of us to do? I don't know. I'm not. Can I? I believe I have the technological capacity to do that, but I don't know if it would be like okay to just distribute someone else's art for us. We, we will credit them. Uh, you could always ask if they're online. Yeah. Also, hi, we're recording a podcast. We are. Yeah. Uh, about what they come seven for. peace falls. The final chapter of Terra Ignota. Do we want to? Uh, we probably should talk about the chapter and then after after reflecting on it, then grade ourselves. And you, apparently. We can come to some sort of actual oh, conclusion God. about your predictions. Okay, so, um, good news. You remember earlier today, this'll be not things that you, the listeners, know. By the oh. way... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, are, the li are there people listening live? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, shit. Why is it not telling One of them me? left! <laughs> yeah, that's pretty that's super understandable. I get that. Um... <laughs> The, the roof people are here? There are two oh. people besides me watching this live stream. There were four. One of them left. Okay, this is fine. At some point, we might want to talk about Seven yeah. Peace Falls. Oh, I see the mistake I made. Wait. Okay, so we're, gonna we're going to uh, talk about the book in full, complete, the chapter in full, complete detail, and uh -huh. then we're going to come to a final conclusion on modest predictions, which is necessary because... <laughs> I gave different probabilities for the same prediction, so I in need we need to come to some common conclusion about what those words mean in order for me to get my grade. Here's the, <laughs> uh, like, actually, I have two notes. One is you guys are both wrong. No one is listening to this. All three viewers are us trying to monitor the stream so we know I, what's going on. I'm not monitoring the stream. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, no, we have one listener. Hi. Uh, bear with us. <laughs> Structurally. <laughs> Structurally. I think it actually makes more sense if we don't try to stick to a really firm format, and here's why. We're gonna have at this least is... three people on, all of whom will want to talk about different things, and if we say the first half of this podcast is gonna be the book, then a bunch of people won't get to talk about what they want to talk about. You understand that what I mean is that we're gonna, the last thing we're gonna do is the predictions. That's all I'm saying. This chapter's gonna take a long time. Let's That's just fine. do it. Let's the last just go thing we'll do this, is the predictions. This chapter is super long. Just Marta, what do you want to talk? What, what do you want to talk about? Go. Uh, I want to talk about Thomas Hobbes' thoughts on endosymbiotic theory. Oh my god, I forgot you're a biologist. 
Okay, that actually sounds delightful. Let's please talk about Thomas Hobbes first. Okay, so, um, Thomas Hobbes has a character arc, apparently. Right at the end. Yeah. (laughs) Which is the most delightful thing. So, Thomas Hobbes uh, talks about various aspects, and at some point, someone informs him of developments in biology and our understanding of the natural world and says, you know, ah, the term is cells, friend Thomas, and is like, really? Like Robert Hooke's micro- micrography? So humans are like plants and made of a honeycomb, and is like, yeah, it's about right. <laughs> it's like, okay. we're, we're not going to teach Thomas Hobbes about, you know, the details of tissue differentiation right now. We'll, we'll get to that, you know, sometime on the spaceship later. Uh, <laughs> oh, do you think... Oh my god, okay, so I actually need to stop you. Do you think that the spaceship stuff is happening? It's a very difficult question to answer. For example, what does the word happening mean? Do, okay, so the end of the book, and I've thought about this, um, and one of my thoughts was, hey, it's a good thing we watched Utena, but the other one was, I think... <laughs> It's presenting us at the last minute with a framing device that actually doesn't make sense on reflection. And the spaceship stuff isn't literally occurring in the text and is Mycroft writing. I don't think the reader is any more real than we presumed him to be two chapters ago. I'm gonna have to get into this a lot. If I want, if you want a good explanation, I think. Um, oh no, we could never do that on this show. <laughs> I'm saying it might be early for it. Okay. Uh... So, suffice to say, I think Liam is mostly correct, but I'm not. I'm not fully endorsing his view. Um. Also, hi, Harrell. Harrell is here and may jump in at some point. Hey, Harrell. Oh, who should? Uh, who's our? Um... Uh, Lord and Savior. Oh, um, great question. I think I had one at some. Uh, I guess we we can just go with as many names for Jed as you can think of. Okay, can you do me a favor and and maybe just write that list and then let me write. <laughs> I'll read it list. for you. Just there's one at the beginning of the first chapter of Seven Surrender. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, here's what we're going to have to do as far as guests. I think you two are fine. You've both been on before simultaneously, and it's worked out. Um, If you want to come on and talk about the books, and I'll try to make a note to say this a bunch more times, please do. This is my last chance to make sure that I have made a podcast exclusively for people I've persuaded to be on it. Um, But maybe, like, say something, and then we'll try to coordinate so there's not too many people all talking all at once. And I, I just kind of trust you all to make that easy for us to, to do. Trust us, it'll be great. Uh, so anyway, Thomas Hobbes' character arc in this chapter. Yeah. Um, Thomas Hobbes is told about, you know, humans being made of cells, yeah. and continues on in Thomas Hobbes' fashion, talking about, you know, sovereignty, constituent elements of a nation, etc. Later on, uh, Mycroft thinks to himself, I believe it's during the Mason's surrender or the Mason's peacefall. 
Um, yeah, it's when Thomas Hobbes totally loses his mind. Thomas Hobbes <laughs> no, learns during, about it's, biology. Yeah, well, that Thomas but it causes him to rethink his entire political philosophy, and it's it's just so. so good. I think it was Homeland, actually, uh, the Homeland stuff. Uh, Thomas Hobbes learns about uh, you know an organism placing restrictions on itself, and Mycroft says, "But doesn't this?" in your mind, invite more danger than it does peace and security? And Thomas Hobbes is like, sorry, I wasn't listening. I was reading about endosymbiotic theory, uh, <laughs> which is, uh, in biology, the notion that mitochondria and chloroplasts, which also Thomas Hobbes, in classic uh, high school student fashion, forgets the name of chloroplasts <laughs> and asks someone to help him. Um, yeah, that's at the end it's, of the Mason section. It is that's the, at the end of the Mason section. Thing. I have a lot of um, thoughts about the Mason section, actually. Uh, uh, Thomas Hobbes discusses how uh, these organisms in the ancient past that theoretically would become mitochondria and chloroplasts were previously independent bacteria mm -hmm. absorbed by larger cells that ultimately came to a equitable distribution of resources such that all could benefit a kind of mutualist cooperation where the mitochondria surrenders a lot of its function uh, that allows it to be independent to the rest of the cell that in turn provides it with everything that it needs to survive and, and reproduce itself. Mm -hmm. um, the implication here is actually really interesting. So in political science and political philosophy, sorry, in political philosophy, there is a long-standing concept called the organismic metaphor, which is interpreting a uh, state system as a single organism and using all of the aspects of a state uh, as reference to various things. You know, this part is the nervous system, this part is the circulatory system, this is the head that makes decisions, that's usually something like a sovereign. And if you read Leviathan, Thomas Hobbes uses it extensively, and actually in quite a detailed way. Yeah, um, quite good. You, you guys should read Leviathan. It's good! <laughs> uh, and it's an old, I think it goes back to Aristotle, it's a very old concept. Um, but what's interesting is Thomas Hobbes has updated it for his then-contemporary scientific understanding of various aspects of the senses, and his personal materialistic view uh, of how the world operates. Um, is empiricist, materialistic concepts. What this ultimately amounts to is that he's using the science of his day to uh, uh, describe what he thinks a state system is organized like. But of course, science marches on. Science continues to make new discoveries and alter our understanding. Now, Hobbes is operating at a high enough and basic enough level that basically nothing he says about the science is directly contradicted by the later evidence. But some of the premises that he's operating under, like the independence of organisms, are complicated by, say, the gut microbiome, or the interaction between the gut and the, and the central nervous system, or hormones, or a lot of other things that complicate the view of the state if you want to extend the metaphor, somewhat. So what's happening here is Thomas Hobbes, on learning more of the science and more of the biology of how these organisms operate, 
is willing to compromise some of his principles to adopt to this new scientific reality that he's been using as the basis for his description of the state. Okay, I, I was with you all the way until the end there. Um, I don't think what we're seeing here is Thomas Hobbes compromising his principles, because as he lays out in truly excruciating detail through Leviathan, the episode for which I've been promised will be released eventually, <laughs> his principles are, hey, let's just look at the way things are and base everything off of that. And what's happened is, it, it, it turned out there was different ways that things were. And yep. he just immediately rewrote his entire 600-page <laughs> book in his head minutes later. I, I think it's fair to say he's compromising that aspect of his philosophy as he's updating according to his more fundamental principles of looking at the nature of reality and describing it. Maybe. I, I generally have reservations about naturalistic theories of human nature slash politics, but I really would like to see this Thomas Hobbes learn about plasma physics and somehow base a theory of anarchic cooperation off of it. <laughs> He's mostly operating from the perspective of understanding the body. We should like and like light and a couple other things. I don't know that plasma physics would quite make Thomas Hobbes into an anarchist. He might. We should give Thomas Hobbes uh, mutual aid. I mean, that's clearly the joke operating with the plasma effects me me uh, metaphor. Yeah, but it's updated for biology. I wonder what other, like, aspects of science we could poison Thomas Hobbes with. Like, poison is a word. I think uplift. What is he going <laughs> to do when he learns about the waveform uh, concepts of quantum mechanics? I something really fun. Probably I, I laws think he'll do, like waves in he'll, that they're he'll do both what ideas most people and do and things. not understand it. Yeah, or like ignore it, or like choose at random some like real bizarre interpretation of, of the physics. Here's how the waveform collapse proves that angels don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Except or proves that they do. New subject. So yeah, um, Thomas Hobbes gets a character arc and starts doing things in the framing device meta plot thing, which we're not going to talk about right now, because we have seven peace falls to get through. We do. Yeah, hey, can I get this one out of the way early? Um, there's been a long and ongoing discussion about whether or not the Masons have laws, and uh, it turns out they just didn't, but yeah. they do <laughs> now. So it's no, hard. To they will in three years. Papa continues to be the best character. So I... Papa's not the one who says the Masons have to stop making shit up. That's in the narr that's, narrative that's voice. Nine A Mycroft summarizing Papa. But that is Nine A Mycroft summarizing. Yes. You can bet that Papa actually swore in that speech. Yeah. I just. I'm astounded that the Masons had gone this whole time not having laws. Now, so, so the Masons, in terms of their actual description of what's happening here, are very clear to point out, look, the ancient body of the Masons is not changing, but, you know, the hive is clearly not working in various ways. We're going to make various aspects of reform to reflect that. Well, that... Uh, 
Well, that that that's like the uh, I think the actual framing of like the um, the law thing is that the Masons have always had a law body. You just haven't told everybody the whole thing, and then like uh, Papa's like, "Fuck you! Give me the entire thing right now, or it won't count." Yes. Now, for the purposes of setting it down, for the purposes of hive intercooperation, the Masons have to submit a single body of law to apply to them in perpetuity unless, you know, something changes in the future. And they aren't allowed to bring in new precedents and new laws that aren't part of the existing body of hive knowledge. Now, here's the uh, thing. Here's a question. Sorry, Liam, you can go first. Okay. That's actually super dumb. Um... <laughs> absolutely the Masons should have laws. I've, I've gone this whole series backing the Masons, based in large part on the idea that they have written down the laws and mean them. Uh, <laughs> so I'm thrilled that they're now going to do that for real. Absolutely. Thumbs up. But the whole point of having one guy who just tells everyone else what to do is that he can tell everyone else what to do. So saying that like, okay, we're going to have laws now, but no new laws ever? seems to really undercut the emperor element of the Masonic. Yeah. So I don't like, think it's that okay. there's no new law ever, every but you can't hive. pull out a precedent out of your back pocket. Yeah, Every other hive has the ability to legislate in some manner, though. And the mm -hmm. Masons generally legislate by just the emperor saying something, and now it is law. And how well, is that going to work when Romanova no longer accepts that as a form of legislation? No, it, well, that wasn't their legislation not, previously. That's not true. Yes, it was. They... they they had two ways of this. Either they said the emperor can make decisions and so does, or they said, actually, this is already a law. Yeah, they said another By emperor most ancient a thousand mandates. years ago said it, and therefore it's even more important than if this emperor had said it, which yeah, makes no sense. It's a pre-existing yeah. pre law. Don't worry, this isn't an ex post facto, fa uh, facto law. It's fine. Basically, you're no longer allowed to use precedent that you haven't shown the rest of us to justify a law that you want right now, rather the than making a It's not actually meaningful in the Masonic law system, except when it comes to pro-magisters. If you're an emperor, precedent does not matter. But they, so, they, they, they often clearly say, cares about precedent repeatedly. Yeah, so like, there's, there's the thing. that's their shtick, right? Like, yeah, they're they're an unbroken tie back to ancient Sumer or whatever. Beyond Sumer. They say they're older than Ur or something. Yeah. Someone Man, from dogehype.com has just offered to promote us. Oh, no, <laughs> ban them. I don't know how to What the hell is dogehype.com? Uh, I'm sure it's legitimate. I should click just that. just a bot. This is common on Twitter. <laughs> um, oh. No, no. What they say is, if you don't submit it right now, it will never be admissible in Romanovan courts, period. Ever, period. And wow, that's a really hardcore pitch from Dojai. <laughs> <laughs> I did think that's where that sentence was going for the first half. Yeah. Sadly, no. Uh... <laughs> but that, yeah, how do you now have an emperor if they can't, like, the whole How do you have two emperors? I actually, Easily. two emperors? So good. Everything the Masons do, except letting in cousins, is spectacular in this chapter. They become <laughs> the best version of themselves. So, uh, to be clear, uh, 
immediately before Mycroft has done the uh, trick on Faust and uh, of the previous chapter, Martin gets returned to Jehovah and immediately is declared second emperor. The, the key, Martin keeps on calling Jed uh, his August colleague. That's like a a Diocletian thing, right? So Diocletian uh, instituted a system called the Tetrarchy, which is referenced obliquely in this chapter, uh, in which there are four quasi-rulers, two senior rulers and two junior rulers over the Roman Emperor. Um, the senior rulers are August, Augustus, and the juniors are Caesars. So there's Caesars below, and then Caesar Augustus is above. Mm -hmm. Um... And Diocletian shared with, I believe it's Maximian, um, and this, and they both had people who were going to be next in line for that. And that was going to be the new system because the Roman Empire got too big to govern effectively, except there's several problems with the system. First, while it's theoretically a power-sharing agreement between two-slash-four people, it, in fact, Diocletian was much more powerful than everyone else in the, in the early days of the system. And if Diocletian wanted something done, it got done. And if somebody else disagreed with Diocletian, it was problems. Uh, secondly, Diocletian retires at a certain point, and, you know, people start moving up this hierarchy. And the system immediately collapses into civil war as soon as he does so. Uh, and uh, the various children of, the, of Diocletian and Maximian each want to be the next person in line. They want to be the next Caesar. And when this doesn't happen, they start raising armies to force the issue. And everyone else has to raise armies in contrast. And this leads to a big civil war between a bunch of people who are all theoretically kind of okay with each other, but really not. And what ultimately ends up happening is Christianity controls the West. <laughs> This is how that happens. Because Constantine... Constantine is the child of one of them. <laughs> and ends up, when he gets passed over for the position of Caesar, raising an army. <laughs> and ends up winning the massive civil war that follows. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure that'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, the other positive example, there's one from the Byzantines, and I don't know the Byzantines well enough um, to answer that. But the other example is like, yeah, Marcus Aurelius, a guy who definitely knew how to do succession properly. <laughs> That's right. The um, last of the four emperors, because while he did share power with a prominent general in his uh, army that was important and valuable, when he actually dies, the power devolves to his son instead of to another appointed successor that everybody else was doing in the previous section of the four emperors. And that's Commodus, who's terrible. And loves chariot racing and gladiatorial games more than governing. Carter, there's a really easy solution here, which we all know. Jed just won't die. Jed just... <sighs> now, hang on. Why are you saying that in that tone? That is the solution, actually. <laughs> because I it's know Walmart's going to be so upset. Uh, I don't know. Like, it's unclear that that's actually going to be what happens. We have been joking about immortal tyrants since book one, and you just finally found out that there actually will be one. I'm certain that, like, um, 
I don't know. They keep talking and making plans for like some energies in the future, and they keep like almost not taking that seriously. Like, why do you think this is going to be at all the way the world works in seven hundred years? A and B. Why do you think it's going to work out the way you set it out to be? Um, so, like, a big part of it is, and and this is support in the text. Before you start yelling at me, God won't let Jehovah die. That is not even my problem here. <laughs> Um, okay. There's also and the I, implication repeatedly about the concept of generation, that there will be generations after Jehovah. Like, the whole discussion of the European succession, where, oh boy, it's so good that Spain is going to have sex with Donna, eh, and they're going to have a kid, which, yeah. by the way, several questions there. Uh, oh yeah, a lot. But like, uh, but That's, that's almost... going to fix the problem with Europe, because uh, Jed will no longer have to sire an heir... Because Jed needed an heir? Well, yeah, like, either Jed has an heir, or he's stuck being the European emperor too, which might be a problem for him. No one has quite thought through the implications of mortality in this chapter. It's clear, like, so many different times. Uh, and separately, they're all, like, pretty confident that political arrangement is going to, like, survive for, like... Because we, we only get, like, four extra weeks we don't know what's going to happen in, like, a year. Also, before before we go too far past this, so everyone's talking about Spain and Danae having kids when Danae and Ando specifically were not having kids because they were each proud of their French and Japanese heritage, respectively, and according to Mycroft, didn't want to mix it. Whereas Danae, still French, Spain, still Spanish, but also mixed Spanish-Japanese and I don't understand how this does not come up even once. Okay, here's how it works. Makes perfect sense. Here's how it works. The line of Bourbon, which is the Spanish royal house, was originally French. So the line of Bourbon is, by definition, the Frenchest line to ever exist, no matter who it marries into <laughs> or who is presented into it. So Therefore, it is impossible to get... Uh, Therefore, Danae is, is, by definition, less French than Isabel. It can only be improving her line. This is, this is, the, this is the reason. That's pretty reasonable. And you can also okay. ignore all of that and note that it's clearly way better to marry into some random faraway place than your close, bitter enemy. Carter, you're typing very loudly. I'm very yeah. sorry. I am trying to find uh, a compelling series of here are the problems with perhaps the stars is ending. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many, oh, though. That'd be fun. Uh, um, yeah, they're doing gender now. They're unbanning gender. We're just jumping around. Okay. That's uh, sequentially. We're jumping around all day because everyone yeah. is going to want to talk about different stuff. We just need to accept that and move on. Yeah, we do. It's, it's going to be okay. Uh, it's going to be the way it is. So, uh, so here's one of the bigger issues from my perspective. Mm -hmm. The future is simultaneously extremely specific and incredibly vague. And gender is one of the more obvious places where that goes. Uh, we have that there will be a committee on gender headed by Sniper mm -hmm. that will decide how to deal with this massive problem that has been emblematic to the books. And their solution is... I don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll like, we'll like investigate it. We'll look at the Olympics. We'll 
have a lot of discussions. Maybe there will be an honest allegorum about gender, and and we'll figure it out in a way that's not corrupted by Madame, and and we'll just figure it out. We'll figure I, it out. We'll, we'll figure it out. I don't have a problem a with someone who, like, despite having done more thought about gender than most people in this book, still has a lot to learn. But I do have a problem with, like, just the idea of Sniper being in charge of people's genders when Sniper notably does not not conceive of being okay with people not being the most impressive the best version of themselves that they can possibly be someone could walk up to sniper and be like yeah i feel like kind of a gender i feel like i don't feel pulled towards any specific gender and like i think that's just me i think i'm just gonna you know do my own thing and sniper's like Ah, so you are non-binary, and you must be the most non-binary person ever. Here's a bunch of stuff to do. You have no right to complacency about gender. <laughs> so, since gender is fundamentally aspirational, Sniper is the perfect person to hound this committee. <laughs> I do have to say, motivational speaker. I do have to say, the proposal for the honest allegorum about gender raises a very good question. The two of you podcast hosts have basically been having an honest allegorum about gender since you started this podcast Over and having lots and lots of discussion. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you think it's a good system that, you know, a lot of people should be doing? Absolutely. It seems way funner than, like, the way that gender was given to me by my society. So, sure, why not? And not to clarify, only... your gender was given how? Um, how was my given tend to give it to my society? I, I give this whole university department's devoted to this, so we could get to it later. We uh, could get to it later. It's like a whole thing. Um, no, no, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Do it now. We have time. <laughs> um, I guess by implication in a lot of my life, but then like, um, a lot of my life, especially in the later part of my high school, so it was spent like in a gender segregated high school. Um, and so a lot of people had very strong opinions about gender. I disagreed with literally all of them. Um, and so uh, that's not true. I guess I've been in a uh, honest algorithm about gender um, since like ninth grade. Okay, but was that just like a dialogue about gender or was it an intense interrogation of your feelings about it where people constantly come in and tell you that your feelings are incorrect because that's what the anus dialogorum is is arguing about what it means to be a mason and people telling you that your ideas are wrong oh yeah everybody screwed with me anyway Seems reasonable but they're all incorrect i think this has been great uh in fact I think maybe they should just keep doing this forever until everyone gets on the same page, which is, um, which is my page, but that's not why. Mm. <laughs> Big think. Big think. Um, so, but a relevant issue here that I think is kind of emblematic of a lot of the problems of this chapter is that this book series has been building up to the remaking 
the moment when the morally perfect being will solve all of our governmental and structural problems to make the most perfect human system that has ever existed even more perfect and good. And the solution is simultaneously extremely incremental on the system that already exists, mm -hmm. to the point of being kind of shocking of how little actually changes. Plus, where it does change, being more in line with 21st century Western liberal moral values. Because the 21st century was the golden age of gender, Martyr. Yeah. I, okay, but, but I even ignoring the like, the, like, okay, having a G and a... Why did I say G like it's the premier of China? Um, <laughs> but having like Z's and they's and it's G and they gender and all that. Man. Interesting. Even if like, okay, the 21st century is a golden age of gender, but also let's do things that are more like the United Nations in a world where concepts like United Nations are kind of weird and screwy. And you already have the Romanovan hive system. And it's not really clear what the hell a nation strat actually does. And we're going to be like, okay, we can't have a, a government structure based around being the nicest people. But we can have an, a strat structured around being the <laughs> nicest people that does the same thing. And, and you start wondering, what? What? A lot of fans There's have a lot problems of what? with this. At the end uh, of last episode, I made a prediction, which is that we would get the European Union back except harder. And I want to claim credit now yeah, that the United fair. Nations is precisely the EU except harder. In the interest of saving time, I will agree with Liam. I don't feel so. <laughs> Uh, the United Nations is not the EU, but harder. It's like really apparent if you compare the structures and relative um, success rates. Like relative success rates, the EU commonly passes directives that are mostly followed. The UN doesn't do that. The UN actually does a fair deal of that. It's only the, the uh, assembly the UN fails at. Yeah, the UN frequently has successful votes, and they just all obey it. Frequently, fair enough. Um, like a lot of the UN's voting structure is like what to do with various things the UN has the power and authority to do. The things that end up working and binding all the individual nations have more problems, but still can often work. The trouble is when anything remotely okay. controversial happens. So you've misunderstood me. Uh, EU directives necessarily bind all of the um, uh, lower nations. That's correct. Yeah. So, like specifically, that you you just carved out the specific thing EU directives do from the thing that the UN does. So, like, oh, yeah. they're not the same. And in fact, <laughs> EU um, is very different from the UN. Okay. So, I didn't really interpret Homeland as um, I don't know more in line with the. Uh, uh, modern 21st century liberal values so much as a clear power grab by Dan Danae, uh, an attempt to capitalize on the good press the nation strats already had mm -hmm. um, to make a firm power base. Uh, While we're, your insane consistent cynicism towards everyone and everything <laughs> in this book has reached what I am impressed to call its zenith in this chapter, 
which has lots of things to be cynical about. What? <laughs> I don't know why you, you think this is, this is that weird. You don't? No. This okay. chapter's entire tone, ethos, and whatnot are, like, insanely hopeful, except for the grotesque human rights abuses. Uh, which, by the way, are definitely happening at the oh, end yeah. of this chapter. Uh, and um, and you're just deciding to interpret so many things as, this is going to collapse, this is a terrible idea, this is someone's naked power I, grab. I did not say it was a terrible idea. I think the, uh, the, uh, Homeland thing because it will uh, by reservations has a chance of like the next time there's a war which is probably going to happen more frequently now by the way but the next time there's going to be a war um, it's um, probably going to happen more frequently and you're like oh yeah I'm not cynical about it <laughs> they're probably going to be less bad wait let me save some time of all of the peace falls in this chapter mm-hmm. are any of them not coups <laughs> Monwauer. Come on. None of them are coups. What? What? Oh my god. Well, I call that progress. <laughs> how can this how can they be coups? Obviously. Papa made Jin Im Jin step down as speaker. This is a result of like a literal conquering walk into your city. If you at that point, if somebody in Gaul called um accused Caesar of being a of, of launching a coup, they're just being weird about it. Uh that's just not what's happening. Oh, and you'd never do that, of course. I'd never do that. Okay, so conquest trumps coups. Good to know. Yeah, okay. Um, and a lot of these are either conquest or things the the hive did itself way before. It. So, like, um, yeah. Hey, uh, just, just a quick thing. We definitely have... Twitch will record this, right? Yeah. yeah. You have okay. to make it do a thing so that it saves, but yeah. But we should get Craig back if Craig's not on. Craig's on. Oh, thank God. Okay. It's just because I'm not recording my own audio this time. I I think about it every few seconds, and I develop real intense anxiety. Uh, Speaking of anxiety, uh, how many of the people who self-convicted to be 10-hour services do you think are just have scrupulosity? Okay. We we will spend hours. We'll spend hours on Great. We have so long. I have booked out my entire day. <laughs> this is it. This is the only thing. Um, okay, before... Apparently, estimates of scrupulosity vary from like zero to sixty percent. So I don't know, like empirically, how much you should expect the population of Terragnata world to have scrupulosity. But I think maybe I don't know. Five percent seems conservative. Um, five to one percent seems conservative. And I think probably every single one of those people would immediately give an opportunity self-convict of being a 10-hour servicer. So not just think... there's not just the 10-hour servicers. There's also the full-on I have fucked up so bad I must forever sacrifice my freedom and my uh working hours to help others forever and not sure. under my own power. And well, like, I don't know how many I don't know the relative that. I don't know the relative rates of um of uh how severe scrupulosity varies within the population, so I can't estimate that really well, given how poor some of are in the beginning. Uh, but yeah, there's also that. Um, some people are just going to be that, and they like, did nothing wrong. So here's, be... 
Julia! Julia says I did nothing fucking wrong! Yep. I bet the she did. great part about this is that given the specific conditions, specific uh, sentence crimes. Jehovah gets, yeah. crimes Jehovah accuses the world of, and the specific outline of what it means to self-convict, Julia is just right. <laughs> I... Julia has threatened Julia's a bad person. Before. I'm not convinced she hasn't like caused someone to die over the course of the previous two books. Uh, convincing someone to die isn't the same thing as violence. Also, wasn't during the war. <laughs> during the war, Julia uh, just kept on trying to protect the people of Romanova uh, consistently, yeah. and like to a T. She's like a bad person who should be convicted of other things than killing people. But like, yeah, she didn't kill anybody. She very nonchalantly implies to Carlisle that she could have her killed. I exactly. imagine that this is because she's done it before and probably did it since. And also plenty of the people who, uh, you know, killed for one reason or another can say, oh yeah, that was self-defense. That was defending somebody else uh, in an extremely abstract sense. But, you know, I think I don't think this self-conviction system really makes a ton of sense, even though it solves one of the obvious problems, which is that the trial system afterward would be so outrageously huge and not have well-defined laws that it probably is a better solution than the alternative. Yeah, the thing um, I was going to compare it to was peace and reconciliation councils after um, various wars. You know, after the conflict in South Africa, truth and reconciliation commissions, like... Yeah. Uh, yeah. idea let's that, let's like, not convict to, like, people, but let's get all the info out. Yeah, or like, if we do convict people, it will be in this sort of limited sense, and if you come forward, you'll have a much thing. Yeah. Like, sort of limit the sort of... Because um, uh, one thing that happened, say, after um, World War II, right? Uh, and this happened uh, to various degrees in both the East and West Germany, but I think it happened a little bit more in West Germany, um, because of, like, who they managed to capture <laughs> in the end of the war, <laughs> and they just got more, the West Germany just got more people who they found valuable, um, is that um, there was going to be this sort of massive program of denazification, but, like, a lot of the people you would want to run a, 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 a country ended up being Nazis. Uh, form, form Nazis of to varying degrees, yeah. Like former members of the Nazi party, um, even if they didn't like commit specifically um, uh, war crimes, didn't like end up in Nuremberg. A lot of them did do things we were fed up like really bad. And in order to keep the country running, they just said, "Okay." At a certain point, at a certain point, they just said, "Okay, we'll just keep on going." And so there was sort of like a uh, sort of it wasn't until later that they had that sort of reckoning about how what these people yeah. did and why they did it, and that sort of delay sort of caused a lot of changes in English language, which I think is what the Truth and Reconciliation Council was trying to avoid. Don't just want the reference Yeah, the policies happen. of Conrad Adenauer were like, the more important thing is to have a stable government now, and that means that we need a lot of the people with the expertise and the knowledge, etc., yeah, yeah. Uh, to actually do the work, even if they were tainted by political association previously. And as a result, uh, denazification in West Germany was stunted to various degrees initially. Yeah, and um, that's like all sorts of things. Which like, was successful for the political aims of the West German polity. Like it, yeah. it, it the end result was 
a pretty solid economic and cultural base that did not immediately descend into chaos, which was the goal. Yeah. Um, and to a certain degree, like, the Council's attempt to, like, both have this later reckoning and sort of preserve the functional power of the state at once. Um, and in this case, right, it's not even like they just want the economy to keep running. They can't handle yeah. every person who killed somebody being a surfacer. And when we say any person who killed anybody, first of all, 1.8 million deaths in a population of 10 billion, it's not just people who's pulling the trigger that's the relevant issue, but people who supported it, people who ordered it, people who were involved in the manufacture of munitions, people who were involved in this, that, and the other thing. People who would have done it if they were in slightly different circumstances in some cases, (laughs) based on Kenzie Malkiewicz's uh, moral admonition, which, by the way, is one of the first and only solutions I've ever seen presented to the problem of moral luck in warfare, which... Whether or not I think it's successful, I have to give credit for, because that's a super important part of the ethics of warfare, and it's very rarely talked about in any sort of rectified way. What's interesting is that like, there are so many people who don't self-convict, who would have done something different in different circumstances, right? Occam, uh, Martin, right? Those people would have done committed violent acts in the service uh, of their ideas, uh, but it didn't because they got the they ended up being in prison or in Arkham's case, peace washed. Yeah, I think. I guess the issue is if you did say the system is if you would have committed crime uh, under some circumstance during this war, then you have to enlist. Um, on the one hand, you could prune the Masons really quickly because <laughs> any Mason who doesn't self convict is kind of like telling on themselves, right? <laughs> wild and also like being a 10-hour servicer is a hugely different to being a proper full-time servicer like you're just signing up for community service at a what i think is a pretty reasonable rate oh yeah for the rest of your life yeah sure but like yeah it's yeah it's not like labor in terra ignata though they're super weird about it there's also a nice little carve out in discussing like, okay, if you're a surgeon, maybe you can't devote an extra 10 hours of your week, but like everybody else, even if you've got important projects that you care about, even if you're a vocateur, you still have to put in this time and you have to take away from rest and other projects that you care about in order to make up for the damage you slash we have caused. I mean, a surgeon can like, just consider the surgeries part of their 10 hours, honestly. I imagine they wouldn't let them, right? I mean, this is sort of solved, too, in that this world has anti-sleeps, so just sleep less. They're notably unhealthy. Uh, the anti-sleeps have problems. You, you can't take them a certain, uh, a certain amount of days in a row. Book your week such that you don't. Oh, fun thing I found out relatively recently. Um. The advent of artificial lighting was originally billed as giving mankind back the hours stolen by sleep. Oh, yeah. Uh, And, like, you have extended the human lifespan by giving us more time to rest, relax, and work. Uh, 
through the advent of, you know, la safe lanterns and later um, electric lighting, like you have expanded the human lifespan, not by making us live longer, but by giving us more time to live our lives while we live them. Yep. Um, so while we shame that if I uh, could be, if I didn't have to, if I could make myself not have to sleep, I just wouldn't. So many things oh, who would? It's terrible. That's it's not true. so long. I had an argue with 30, with 30 people where every single one of them was like, yeah, I would want to sleep. I would want to have some amount of sleep because I actually get a lot of value out of one day is over and I have a brief period of reset and before the next day starts because I will have a lot of days where I'm like, I'm super mad and upset. And then I go to bed and then I wake up the next day and I'm like, I'm not mad and upset. I'm okay. Yeah. That's the a value. I, I but that would be just an hour. I absolutely need time to sleep. I love sleeping, actually. Uh, but Wabra, you could look into modafinil. No comment. Um, <laughs> for the record, as someone who's had terrible insomnia, I would not give up sleep for anything less than an actual proper solution, as yeah, opposed sure. to a chemical that says it feels like it isn't a sol it, I'm not having the problem, but actually I'm not going to have like six other side effects that are terrible. Do you still suffer the negative consequences of just not having slept? Certain of them, I believe. Yeah, uh, oh, apparently well, modafinil really is supposedly, according to people I've spoken to, the kindest version of this, but I have no personal experience, nor research. But like, Ability to form, convert short-term memory into long-term memory, ability to have proper muscle growth, and ability to be awake the next day are all things that are going to be impacted by any meaningful reduction of sleep. Though there are, uh, there is actually a medical condition that has, um, you only need about half the amount of sleep as most people do. Um, I know, right? So and I know someone who I think has it, because uh, she sleeps about four hours a night and is insanely productive and doesn't need, um, you know, rest and relaxation in traditional fashions. Uh, she is covered in rainbows and glitter at all hours and um, is dating, like, fully 20 people. Hmm. Incredible. Uh, I do want to note that, um, uh, so, like, sometimes you, you, you have an angry day and you go to sleep and you um, wake up less angry. The key solution is we forget to just not remember. Do you be just easily distracted? No, I remember why I'm upset. No, to be it's... easily distracted. Oftentimes I get really, really annoyed. And then I get distracted by something. And then I fully am something about something else. But but you're just arguing that people should die the way Harrell yeah, does. I was I was gonna bring this up. You're just describing like, okay, you kill the angry person one way or kill the angry person a different way. Either way they die, and a new person who's not angry takes their place. But now my solution doesn't involve sleep. <laughs> That's the key difference here. Okay. Uh, relatedly, um, how much do you buy that having a bunch of 10-hour servicers and also some extra servicers will solve the problem of the servicers existing as an underclass slash the utopians existing as an underclass because the services are going to be working on a modified version of the utopian to-do list. Barely. Do you barely. Elaborate. So maybe this generation, the people who are sometimes servicers, uh, maybe they'll be like, oh man, I fucking hate it when I have to do stuff for people. Maybe I shouldn't rape and kill the servicers. But their kids? Nah. I don't, I don't think that's going to work out.
Yeah, because the Nintendo services are well. Okay, so the the the, the key thing here, I think, is how how the institution of warfare changes, um, because uh, we didn't the with the changes that are being made in the in the in the sort of law of war and peace, sort of make uh, the distinction between war and peace not matter so much, which I think is going to lead to this sort of like eternal era of half war, but like again, much less death. Um, than like typically, uh, or like even like just normal peace and a lot of death, but it could result in like a higher rate of like um, these sort of like self tower services conditions as like a solution to any every time they have like a big blowout or whatever, uh, which could mean they permanently have this sort of like people who end up being in between a servicer and a, a full uh, normal uh, person. Uh, so a related been... question. Mm-hmm. Who's administering the servicers now? Because mm-hmm. there's not a cousin's uh, co- governing body anymore. I assume it's still it's basically the cousins. the cousins. Yeah. Or okay. what they renamed themselves? What are they now? Uh, no, 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 no. The, the cousins no, are still the care. cousins. There is now a new hive that is exactly like the cousins, except without the suggestion box, and that is Kith. Yeah. Um, so, like, the cousins still well, exist. cousin, by the way. Yeah. Kith and kin <laughs> is the usual stock phrase. Mm-hmm. So can we can we discuss the cousins while we're on the subject? Yes, um, I've been waiting to. The sentence... Fucking the bullshit! Are, thank you. Yes. <laughs> the cousins are not too important to be a hive. There's, there's a I lot... literally part, run almost all the hospitals. There's a lot of people who saw this from the lens of like cousins represented to a lot of people kindness, kindness femininity, femininity, nurturing, womanly nature. And we're now saying this quote unquote is too important, or rather, should not be a separate governing body that is co equal to the other sovereign bodies of our world, but rather should be an interior part to all of these governing bodies that merely supplements them and makes them better, but makes no choices individually. Which is good, except what they've actually done is bullshit. Well, okay, I want to make a, I don't think that's necessarily good, but I also want to make a point that it's weird that the organization that runs all the hospitals can declare war on people. That's like (laughs) bizarre. (laughs) And not necessarily a situation you want to continue. What? Not everyone, not only cousins run hospitals. I don't think the cousins This is actually a plot point in one of the previous books. Almost every hospital in Romanova, but a single one is run by the cousins. There are plenty utopians now, and there will be for at least a little bit. Until the <laughs> exact plan happens later. Okay, but like, I do want to, like, it's, it's weird that like, something that like, they apparently run a lot of like, School, etc., etc., etc. I knew that they have an army in this new age of possibly continuous warfare. I think it does. You just keep saying that. Why do you think that? No, I'm just moving past it. I'm not even okay. So, the here's some of my objection here. First of all, the cousins have a lot of problems that I that have been explored at length in this book and previous books. And I don't think this is actually a solution to any of them. Have you noticed that, you know, in all of these peace falls and, you know, all of these things where we're overcoming and we're coming up with political solutions to prevent this problem, nurturism comes up as an example of 
the problems that lead to warfare and violence, but nurturism itself is not addressed at any point. Yeah, the, like, the, the entire the ability to declare war. I think that's like pretty important. Barbara's sure. actually correct. The entire conceit is the problem with the cousins is that they make bad decisions. So we took away their decision power because they're women. Which has several other problems. You know, uh, I hadn't phrased it that way in my head, but now that I have, I still think it's a bad idea. <laughs> we didn't take away their decision power. We deluded them into everyone else. If you have a group who the entire world agrees can't make good political decisions, you should not then say, I know what we need to do. Inject so into other firms because once everyone is making slightly worse choices, it won't matter anymore. So the relevant issue is not that these people cannot make good political decisions, but that the political mechanism that they have for making political decisions did not work, never worked, and was always going to lead to massive problems, one of which is nurturism. However, nurturism is still like a thing and a concept, and the moral intuition that leads to that is not fixed by oh, having sure. the political method of uh, responding to it diluted, especially not when, A, the hive that was chiefly responsible for it now has been penalized with, okay, now you have to publish in not just German. Uh, <laughs> but the second hive responsible for it has been made too important to be a hive, still has a governing structure, still has... The power of a strat, which, by the way, is simultaneously large, never defined, and small. Uh, because what a strat is, how it works, is never meaningfully explored. That's despite true. We don't really know what they series do. Repeatedly. Uh, we have we don't two, really know how strats work. But I'm pretty sure... We have two of these peace falls based around the concept of knowing what a strat is, how it's governed, and how it works. That we don't have! It's making up a new word to say the problem is solved when you haven't solved the problem! None of the problems are- I think you all are to this weird, in a very weird sense. No problem is, like, permanently solved by this, and a dozen new ones are made. <laughs> no. Many problems are solved. Like the Utopia thing. The Utopia, Utopia thing is solved. I completely called oh. it. It was are we solved, doing this? Are we doing and this now? now there's going to be a war in, a, in 700 years when there wasn't going to be one. No, there's not. Yes, there is. Mason is going to tell them to leave. And they're going to make war to make them not. No. <laughs> Did Why you not read this chapter? Why wouldn't they? Because they like, won't sense. have anything. What do you mean they won't have anything? Jehovah is very clear that he's just only going to give the Utopians exactly the stuff they need to do Mars, and then he will, with his bigger, better army, if they try to fight back, chase them off, but also not give them stuff to build any weapons. This is also, I, Martyr, you can talk about dual use, but this is physically impossible to enforce. Yeah, this is not going to work. Um, a. B. Uh, if it was like... They just get to have to hail from Mars and they get to leave, have to leave immediately. Maybe that could work. But instead, what they're going to do is allow like six generations of Utopians to live, breathe, and work on Mars, and then say "fuck off, leave." Choose between your home and your hive right now. That's yes. not going to go with the, the real like impossible this is the point of having Masons. The real impossible assumption here the implication that because Utopia has unilaterally surrendered to the Masons, which they 
uh, did and technically never did to Jed, uh, I'll get into that in a minute, they will just accept <laughs> these decisions and go along with them. And I, I have so many problems with this. Hey, nations should not be in charge of Utopia. It should be Romanova. I can go for hours about that. B, Utopia... I didn't turn it to Romanova. going through my list. B, Utopia <laughs> will continue to exist, but we also learn that Mirai slash Millet will also become most likely a space-faring, futuristic technology development hive. And it can just do the Utopia things without being subservient to another hive. And that just has the entire problem again. D, Utopia never on screen surrendered to anyone except Madame. Surrendered to the Masons off screen between like chapters 10 and 15 somewhere. Surrender to Jed is just implied to have happened in a conversation where if you read it back, it plainly did not happen. It's just... Jed has weird interpretations of what's going on in every scene he's in. You know what? I'll give you that. They probably didn't literally surrender to Jed. But that part doesn't matter because they did surrender to the Masons. And now Jehovah is head of the Masons. Yeah, and we just have no context for what the actual terms there were or how it actually happened. It seems as though they are such that the Masons can just make them go. Yes. Uh, that's like, current. I think they functionally surrender to the Masons, but I, I, like, again, because they still use things because it's going to be so far into the future, I think it's going to be really unlikely that like they will be still functionally surrendered to the Masons. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Years. They surrendered like, to Madame. Beyond that? They surrendered to Madame with mm-hmm. terms lasting and they 150 it. years, and then they <laughs> broke that agreement the moment that it was convenient yeah. for them. Yeah, they're gonna... Yeah, I think this is like... Those they, untrustworthy utopians. I guess to a deeper problem where, like, um, they're making plans like 700 years in the future, and I'm just not confident they can go another, like, 10 years without a war. On the subject of utopia and war, we also get the implication in this chapter that, you know, we still haven't said that they haven't caused this war. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. They probably did. Um, but probably also Gordian did. In fact, in the in the two dual confessions, which by the way does prove last moment that Huxley did in fact commit a terrible crime. Not counting it while we're, which we're crime? not counting it. For doing the war. <laughs> What's the crime? Huh? Not telling people about the war. What's the crime? Yeah, what they, they confess the entire confession list they go through in front of everybody. That thing. That's the okay. they have a confession. What crime what is the legal requirement to tell people about the war? Uh the Masons Bauer, I will tell you what I told you the last time that you brought this up, which is your theory mm-hmm. was not Huxley has committed a crime at some ambiguous point in the present or past or future. It was Huxley committed a crime that is so well known throughout the world that people recoil to his touch upon learning his name. But guess what? What I wrote down when I made my predictions, I didn't write that down. (laughs) Oh, fuck off. (laughs) You weren't even trying to say the right thing. (laughs) I did. Utopia has now been been turned into wandering space Jews. Uh, Wait, uh, can I I talk uh, about the Judaism metaphor? Yes, uh, I made like a there's a Judaism I made like metaphor? a twenty point list about how the Utopians are an allegory for Jews. 
Christ. Okay. Oh God, they they're doing a diaspora. Yeah, they're they're doing yeah. a diaspora. They uh, are literally suzerain to an allegory for Rome. They are mm-hmm. often maligned outsiders. They're not suzerain. The, the Rome uh, is yes, the they're vassals yeah. to the suzerain of uh, Rome analog. Um, they are often ostracized for their uh, immense wealth. And uh, I can throw in technology there. That's not super historically relevant. Wealth, technology, weird names, different culture. Yeah. And they are accused of being responsible for a lot of the world's woes because of this ostracism, even though they're often being framed or actually just like doing things that make them immune to these problems or otherwise circumventing them. But that makes people think that they're causing the problems. And now the solution to not having war is to have pogroms every millennia or so. (laughs) Jesus Christ. There will be no war if Once they again, leave when instructed. I don't know. All of you are hoping for like some sort of like happy ending. Um, uh, but I what just, is the tone of this chapter? Oh, yeah, the tone of the chapter is Minecraft being happy the war is over and happy his god is doing whatever his god is doing. And Minecraft is just like off about this. Yeah, you said that there is some... Someone had asked... Ada Palmer a question about like, oh, does Tarek not have a happy ending? And the answer was, oh, it depends on your perspective. And now that I've read the ending, um, it seems pretty unambiguously positive to me, except for the cousin thing. See, right? Like, uh... I would, I would say, this ending is remarkably happy, and the extent to which it isn't happy is because a war happened at all. And, like, people like, died. And everyone's really upset that people died. Not and even trust many. in the world and trust in the world order has been shaken to its core. And the reform and rebuilding of that will take generations and whatnot. But, like, and also, you know, Utopia's ending, I think, is the least happy of them. Yeah. Um, I, I also went back to my list. Uh, there's a lot of philosophical commonalities between Judaism and Utopia. And also the giant space laser. Emphasis on life. Oh, that's pretty cool. You know, they're giant space I I took your... (laughs) That is one of the things you're going to find out as you go through the Terra Ignota Discord logs later on Uh is the extent to which people just interpreted my random shit posts as predictions for book four that were crazy accurate. It was great. Everyone, there was a semi-serious, mostly joking theory that Martyr had secretly gotten an advanced copy and was just pranking all of us. <laughs> uh, I think I think the cake has to be right before book come book four came out in the US, but was out in Europe. And I'm just like, oh you know what I just noticed? Mycroft's a lot like Odysseus. I've got a list. But I don't have time to post it right now. I'll post it later. And yeah, then, you can find. And then book four. You, you have to sort of cross correlate across channels, but you can see like Martyr says something in a public channel, and then me or someone else in a private that is now public channel goes, "What the fuck? She's pranking us." <laughs> you know what? I'm glad you eventually figured out the Odysseus thing. <laughs> there was one point where I just said, "No, no." That's that image of Carlisle looking sad on a boat. That you know, someone said that's Helen of Troy vibes. I'm like, that can't be right. 
Kato Weeks Booth isn't a cousin. <laughs> and then this fucking chapter happens. <laughs> when Kato Weeks Booth, who is Helen of Troy, much more than previously, is a cousin. <laughs> oh, Christ, you're right. <laughs> yeah. She got all of that just from someone saying, person on a boat. Good job. Thumbs up. By the way, not to drag us back, because th- that's good podcast content. Um, speaking of the happy ending and Kenzie's speech, Mycroft got what he wanted. Kenzie learned Mycroft's lesson right at the end of his book. Which lesson? Specifically, that people need to learn to be afraid of themselves and what they can do. It got yeah, across. It's actually a really touching passage, if I can say so. Like The idea, especially as a child growing up, that you have semi-idolized semi just like it's not even a conscious process you just assume that your parents and the people who raised you know what they're doing that their choices are good because they represent goodness to you and this is like deeper than conscious thought this is just a true fact to children and then the realization as you grow up that this is not the case and that adults and your parents specifically are faulty people. They are capable of mistakes. They do bad things. And this sort of happening on a global scale, not from children towards their parents, but from an entire generation or multiple generations towards their leaders, towards their governmental structures, towards the very philosophical underpinnings of their world and realizing that they don't know where to turn to after that because it's it could be bad all the way down. They just don't know. I wonder if that has anything, if that has any parallels to, I don't know, someone who's a teenager in the 90s and sees the United Nations and the NATO doing lots of good moral things to try and stop atrocities around the world, and then enters the 2000s and the war on terror and all of those conflicts and this becomes uh, changed about the extent to which they think uh, the United States or various political entities are forces for good. I don't know. Maybe that's relevant to various generational aspects of this book. You know, I don't want to risk accidentally becoming political on this podcast, but... <laughs> <laughs> the, the very first time you brought up the, the invasion of Iraq, you said, I don't know if you want to be so political on this podcast, and I'm just, like, never looked back after that. Go on. <laughs> uh, well, look, if this is the time to look back. Um... No, no, I, but I, I love that we finally get that last conclusion to the thing Mycroft set out to do way back when he first killed Apollo. And it happens now, after the war ends. It's a very Mycroft place to be. <laughs> Admittedly, it's not, you know, bloody violence on the streets between people at a personal level. But, like, it's good. Well, it never it's good that people to... recognize uh, potential danger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no. I A lot of this last chapter, again, I, I'll have to say this for the last time. Um, it's really good. Th- these books... Um, you're great, allowed to like I... the books. No, it... I'm not. I have a responsibility to comment on things, and if I just show up and say, yeah, it was good, Liam, you should read it, then I'm Liam, failing. Your responsibility isn't to dislike things. It's to be wrong. And you can like things for wrong reasons. <laughs> I liked the last chapter. I mean, I'm saying a lot of you interpreted it as like a sort of success, fundamentally, more than I did. Delium? Um, See? Like, 
No, no, I see your point now. It's happening, and I, I get it. Um, like, yeah, these don't actually solve the problems. Um, like, that's the comment, right? Like, this is, they're, they're trying to desperately try to rebuild the world, um, and they've made the world worse and slightly better in different ways. Um, what are the ways you think it's worse? Hmm? How do you think the world is worse? Uh, well, they weren't going to have a war on Mars, and now they will. Uh, what? We, they weren't going to have a war on Mars, but now they are. Yes, they would. Why weren't they going to have a war well, on elaborate Mars? Elaborate on both of those Because points. the conflict... So, the, the possible war on Mars, if it was ever going to happen, apparently it was supposed to be, like, between the Mitsubishi and Utopia. Because the Mitsubishi would want land on Mars. And Chopin would be like, no, it's ours. We terraformed Mars. And we learn uh, during this book that there is actually a big contingent of Mitsubishi who do consider Mars and space more broadly as part of their patrimony. Malay, um, yeah. So they would yeah, fight Malay. for it. And Malay, yeah, they would like fight violence for this, right? Um, and then Anime Malay uh, might just leave well, it made up behind to leave and possibly like make a permanent allyship with Utopia, which would have solved the Mars thing because Malay would have helped remove Mars and Utopia would have given Malay part of Mars and they're the people who would. So that's a lot of baked in assumptions that you're making this, there. This that they would ally, the that entire, they would be involved, that they would be traded. The entire already position of the war to Mars already involves a lot of assumptions. So I feel like I'm being just fine here. Um, Okay, one of them's in the text, and the other's what you're coming up with. Uh, yes. Uh, oh, okay. Now, um, <laughs> now, um, there's going to be a like the the eternal pogroms thing is going to happen, uh, and probably some Utopian is going to fight back, um, like to not be pogromed, um, and this is going to cause a um. War on uh, on Mars. I disagree that Utopia is likely to fight back. Why? It's kind of their whole thing. Utopia is actually getting precisely what it wants, and the yeah. thing they needed was to ha always have that push, and they're getting it from the 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 nicest possible source. And any individual person who doesn't want to go can just um, not, not be Utopian anymore. Yeah. Join up with... Can they? Can they? Yeah. Can you, in Christ. the middle of terraforming Titan, or like some star that's a hundred million year journey from Earth, give up on being a Utopian mm -hmm. and go back to being a humanist? You might have to be something else, but... I'm not a humanist. Basically, the premise is fine. I just don't know that they will happen to have humanists on a hundred million light years away. Um, but are you, what are you talking about? That's the humanist thing! They're the only hive that is explicitly humans signed up to do that in addition to the utopians. I think it is likely that many of them will have humanists, for sure. But that every single one that Utopia gets to will also have enough humanists that 200 years later they're like a viable hive. Maybe not. Maybe they'll have Olympiasts by then. Like, culturally, okay. if you're discussing 
galaxy-wide colonization. You kind of need to give up on the idea of having too many galaxy-wide You have this baked-in assumption, though, that point. there will be members of other hives on Mars while it's being terraformed, on Titan while it's being terraformed, so on and so forth. When the implication that we get in the books is that it will be just utopians single-handedly terraforming the planet or moon until they're done and then they leave and then other people move in. So I actually will challenge that much. That is the implication we get up until Sniper's conversation with 9A. At which point, yeah, fuck it, of course we're going to space. Uh, and all of the things involving there, I think, undercut the idea that it's just utopians. Even um, if it is just utopians, I expect with 200 years, a bunch of utopian kids are going to be like, man, you know what isn't cool? Science fiction. But you know what's fun? <laughs> Arguing about religion. And then you're going to have the religion's hive pop up. And maybe they'll stay. Could oh, be. speaking, sorry. Speaking of which, I guess we've got religion now. Yeah. So a lot of this book's like, okay, the interesting science fiction premise of what if this world that has extreme taboos around religion and gender, I guess we can just like, Undo the premise of this book. They fixed it, Martyr. Can they? Fixed they? It. Can they? Or there's going to be another war about this? You just keep saying there's going to be another war! Well, I think there's going to be a lot more wars. You're fucking Apollo Mojave over here! <laughs> there's going to be a lot more wars. And I think they're all going to be mostly fine. Um, somebody explain right. that thesis? Or you gonna it has Apollo's gift of prophecy in continue the most sense. <laughs> I don't think creatively interpret the prophecy after the fact to such a degree that you are no longer seeing the world as it is in an effort to make your prophecy have technically become true is what Apollo <laughs> gives people. Look, I wrote, I pre-wrote down my predictions <laughs> and I just didn't write down. Here's a question for the Huxley... classicist in the room, which is everyone except me at this point. People still disbelieve Cassandra's predictions after they come true. No. They tell her, oh, I guess what you were right. Mean? Or do they tell her, but you were still wrong to think that? No, she's dead at that point. She's dead. Like a bunch of, like um, in uh, Agamemnon after she's murdered by Clytemnestra. Yeah. Um, they're like, oh my God. Who could have seen that coming? I guess she was right. Do they say, yeah. I guess she was right? I mean, in Greek, but... Uh, <laughs> in my translation, it did use the phrase, man, I guess she was right, oh well. I, I think a lot of people will want to hear which translation that is, Liam. <laughs> oh, well, I'll, I'll look it up later. Uh, everyone fight me on this. By the way, Agamemnon, um, there's some really interesting stuff going on with Cassandra's character in Agamemnon specifically, uh, where... She is giving the lamentation cry, the specific Greek formulaic form of like uh, saying the things you're supposed to say when someone else dies about her own impending death that she knows is coming that no one else believes. And everyone thinks she's crazy because she's mourning when no one's dead. Yeah. It's so good. Like a lot of the Cassandra stuff, you need like the particular forms of what's going on, not just the strict text to, to kind of get why it why her shtick is compelling. Uh, relatedly, after Agamemnon, 
Orestes kills Clytemnestra. Mm-hmm. And after that is pursued by the Furies. Mm-hmm. And in uh, Aeschylus's play about that subject, mm-hmm. uh, eventually, after a comically weird trial that we've discussed like five times in this podcast, it's a very good the trial. Furies get renamed. The Grace, uh, the Kindly Ones. The Kindly right? Ones, which is a direct line from this chapter. The Kindly Ones is a reference to the trans... Uh, it comes up in this chapter briefly in reference to the Peace Doves. <laughs> the peace doves, by the way, the fucking weirdest Chekhov's gun yeah. <laughs> that did nothing good in this war, but now serve as a moral question after the war is over. Um, as a bunch of medical supplies and food are delivered to people, along with messages that are weirdly mean-hearted and mean-spirited uh, after everything of the previous conflict, and that was supposed to be. You know, this dove could go to anyone, including your enemies, so you should say something nice to whoever it is. And it's like, imagine being a mason and reading a thing from a humanist that just is like, by the way, Jed sucks. I'm glad he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm sure will have happened by now. (laughs) Somehow you're missing the best part of the Peace Doves, which is that they're introduced in the the story when they slap the Masonic Emperor in the face with the symbol of peace. That's great. That's so good. (laughs) Shoot! <laughs> yes, and then he says, "Off, get away." <laughs> it's great. I'm very fond. But the other Masonic Emperor has the peace dove on his arms now. J.D.D. Mason ha- is a cousin. Uh, yeah, that was surprising. Was it? Was it? Is it really? Yeah, because he's a uh, mason now, so you'd think you couldn't be both. He's Jed! <laughs> I guess, that's true. He's so many things. Uh, but yeah, the, uh, the peace doves happen, and we get... Here's, an, here's a question for you. Has the extremely good, extremely compelling metaphor of sharks eating bananas gone too far. It's used twice in this chapter. This chapter alone. And it's been used used repeatedly over the course of the last book. I feel like it's like an in-joke at this point. That's why I chop it a bit. So, here's a little dark secret backstory to the sharks eating bananas. Okay. Um, A person read uh, The Will to Battle Mm -hmm. uh, in pre-release form, and stated, you're being too hard on the cousins, uh, to the author, which caused uh, reflection on her part, and eventually the solution was sharks eating bananas. All of the textual descriptions of cousins doing bad things and the riots and whatnot in the course of the will to battle are now recontextualized as uh, people noticing things that are in the extreme, the unexpected, the unusual, mm-hmm. which is quite interesting. Um, because that sharks eating bananas then becomes a major through line in this book. Mm-hmm. Is that really but here's what happened? Th- I hate that. <laughs> but here's also, the relevant thing. Uh, on this topic, the fact that Kenzie Walkowitz, or Valkovich, I, I can't pronounce it, is a direct apology to the Polish people for creating Casimir Perry. <laughs> that is in the acknowledgement section. Yeah. Uh, so the relevant issue here is then the sharks eating bananas becomes a through line. And we have a bunch of stuff here about, like, the cousins were actually doing good things, and 
you know, similar things of that nature. And at a certain point, you're like an author, right? And if you care about the things in your book being in your book, you could, for instance, put them in your book, right? Like, if you want to communicate that the cousins are actually helping people, you could show the cousins helping people and not say after the fact, after they've done a bunch of war crimes that you detailed extensively at, for, like, chapters at a time, then say, oh, well, you know, they, they most of them uh, were nice. What was the Red Crystal? Most of them did good stuff. I'm yeah. sure the Red some Crystal, of them were fine people. How, <laughs> how much Red Crystal... Uh, what content was there in this book? Did we get any Red Crystal characters doing Red Crystal things? The Did we get any one. views of Red Crystal caps? We do it torture one? one. It was the torture one. We get a lot of Red yeah. Crystal so we have doing humanitarian work. It's just we don't spend a lot of time on the ground in places where Red Crystal is operating. Yeah, you know what you could have <laughs> done? Written a book where that happened! <laughs> that's, that's pretty fair. Like, I get that the expansive nature of war, and this particular war, especially with the communication problems and the transportation problems that are all really compelling and really well done, mean that you're not going to get a complete picture of everything that's happened. And that there's going to be cues uh, in various directions to one degree or another. And the book is actually pretty good at making, like, okay, this person was doing this thing over here that we didn't necessarily have access to and knowledge of, but it then brings us up to speed and can make that compelling and interesting and tell us that that makes sense. But as regards the cousins in particular, and in a couple other instances, we're just being told that, oh yeah, there are some good people doing things, when the actual text of the book that we're spending time focusing on and the things that we're looking at tell us that what they're doing is terrible. <laughs> And we're just supposed to understand that that's a small minority in a book that is very long and has plenty of room for, like, a cousin doing a good thing, ever. That's what we have Carlisle for. I think it is telling that they don't. <laughs> She's not a cousin for most of this book! She's like, oh yeah, the cousins. I can't be one of those. I'm going to be something else. And she solved so many problems and in some ways is still kind of our cousin representative. But our main cousin representative for this book is Briar Casala, who blows up a space yeah, elevator! Totally fake, yeah. uh, completely fabricated robot log says that Carlisle's still a cousin. By the way, that robot, complete fabrication. It's a throwaway line in this chapter. I'm yeah. Can we Can we discuss that, by the way? Is Cookie, yeah. wait, is Cookie alive? Wait, is Cookie alive? Cookie's that was, Cookie's that was Cookie's real they body. For real did blow up it, it didn't have an artificial intelligence in it. It had. There was no organic fraction. There was no speech. It just had none of that. like a radio receiver and an exosuit. Huh. And I guess a hard drive. A fake USB stick with a fake log radio that had been pre-written. Yeah. Yeah. Man, this makes me doubt Faust's timeline more, honestly. But like, let's wait, 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 take wait. apart this for Marta, a second. Please get to that. I just want to get in one quip since I've been gone for like 17 episodes. Yes, Faust has no idea what mm -hmm. the fuck he's doing. Utopia did better at immortality than the Gordians <laughs> ever did. And they consistently did throughout the books, starting in book one. 
I think I buy that at this at this stage. Yeah, if Kobe they were was, getting uh, help from God, though. Only if you really getting help from God in book three. Episodes? I got help from God before book one started. Uh, yeah, that's that's. They were sending story. Bridger's uh, cures and whatnot to Utopia to uh, from before uh, the start of book one. Yeah, they've been getting consistent help from God. Um, in some sense, they've actually been getting help from God uh, indefinitely before the concept of time. Okay, but <laughs> get to it. So, an entire chapter of this book is total fabrication. This is not unreliable narration where we have to go back and forth and consider, ah, what was this, what was that, what was that other thing. An entire chapter is in-universe propaganda, and we have the assumption a little early on, you know, we're not sure how much of this is propaganda, mm -hmm. which is a little bit of a, of a way to soften the blow here. That is a pretty affecting chapter. You spent a lot of time discussing this chapter on your podcast mm -hmm. and took effort because it's a hard chapter to read and analyze. Mm -hmm. It gave me opportunities How to talk do you about feel? theories of consciousness. Oh, How God. do you feel knowing it was bullshit in universe? Vindicated. Vindicated? <laughs> Vindicated. Uh, no, at several you. points. What? At several points. You start going on about the right way to read this book and saying that my way of reading this book as a history document is bad. And we find out here and now that in fact the author is fully willing to pull an entire deeply affected chapter out from beneath us. I, my way of reading the book, to bring the book is correct. I seem to recall a certain podcast host spending that whole chapter going, well, now that we know how you beasts work, we need to obviously learn to sympathize with them. Yeah. Vindicated? You bought into it. Harder yeah. than anyone Water else. feels like he's sure. justified in hating the fact <laughs> right now. Uh, <laughs> oh. That's also not true. Okay. Uh, it's not like the Firebird thing. Um... It's a pigeon. <laughs> it's a pigeon that turns red. It's to do I'm with sorry. Uh, at some not point, here, so I have to do it. The thing, the thing that 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 I'm referring to is specifically like um the uh the coup the the pop did Papa do a coup thing and where you said like okay there's a certain point where like the author is probably not lying to you and author is just totally willing to lie to us just fully lie and like I'm pretty oh okay. yeah yeah the author didn't lie. <laughs> I will point out that chapter begins with 9A saying, this is clearly We're not fake. sure how much of this is propaganda. The author gave us a accurate recounting of an in-universe document. Yeah. So. And it just turned to be just false. When oh an God. author, generally speaking, and a problem that a lot of lesser authors don't quite get is that audiences don't like it when they're just fucking lied to at length. There are a lot of better ways to do things like, you know, we're given lots of reason in book one to think that Mycroft has committed a crime of various kinds, but we're never told what it is up until the moment when the reveal comes. So people can feel betrayed, but they're only ever betrayed by their own assumptions and estimations about what was going on. You're given ample reason to think. Mycroft is at very least a murderer up until that point. But people just straight don't believe it, which causes that reveal to hit hard, but feel like it's playing fair. And this is one of the trickiest things to do about things like unreliable narration. How much do you do that is uh, conveying information and conveying mood and tone and affect and all of these other things 
without just straight up lying in a way that frustrates the audience. And you can interpret what's going on in this one chapter in various different ways in light of the fact that it's all an in-universe propaganda document that actually takes quite a bit of effort to read, which I think is a related point. Like, the more effort you expand, you expand trying to understand it, the more frustrating feeling like it was all bullshit ultimately means. The way you solve this is by making the lie thematically important. The lie of feeling like you are possessed, like feeling like you are not your own self, like you are instead being moved by a force beyond you, moving you inexorably to something that you can see you may not want or you want in some complicated way, and wondering to yourself, am I still me? How much of me is left? Will there be a me after me? Which is all emotionally affecting, but also ties into a bunch of the other important themes of this book, which is why I think this chapter is excusable. A lot of the things going on with Bridger fucking with everyone's minds and everyone's, the world itself's tendency towards war and the Trojan War in particular is all related to this feeling of I'm being manipulated towards this end that I don't necessarily want. I am moving the world towards war. I am moving towards the sack of Troy, whether I want to or not, and I am not able to stop it, no matter how much I might struggle against it. In particular, for Mycroft and 9A's stuff, where, Mycroft, where 9A is literally overwritten to make a Mycroft and knows this is happening at various, at, you know, slightly before making the decision to make it happen for real, and also Mycroft's dealing with the knowledge and lack of knowledge that he's Odysseus, while we have the full knowledge that he's Odysseus for a much longer period of time than he does, all works with the theme and tone of that chapter, where it's much more bleak, much more sad than we later have these, you may be being drawn towards fate, but you can play with fate in some important respect, and you are maybe being turned into someone that you aren't, but maybe that's okay because it's a worthwhile trade-off thing. Like, there's thematic evolution from the ideas presented in that chapter, and therefore I don't find it as frustrating as it would be in other contexts. But I yeah, believe I there are people who straight up hate it now. I... I can disagree with you with the starting premise that like uh it's great that the that this is just a lot in universal lie. Yeah. Um it makes me like these books even more. Like the thing I want to do with this document, with these books, is the same sort of feeling I like want to get when I read a primary historical document, which is like, um, how much of this is true or like quite through like some sort of underlying reality? How much of this is inconsistent? How much of this is just simply a lie that like telling me because they disbelieve it? Um, and to have uh, uh, reason to support that, reason to support that, right? Like that, that this sort of like way of engaging with the text is productive in some way, but at the same time, it's fun for me. And I'm going to say it again, I'm more of a doyalist than a Watsonian. One of the great problems of many books is, at a certain point, if a person stops caring about the situation that they're reading about, if they don't care what happens to the characters, if they don't care what's going on anymore, if they're frustrated in that particular way, which can happen if what they're doing is interpreting everything as lie. Everything you're saying, I... I assume is wrong, or have no reason to trust, suddenly the engagement can collapse. 
and the book falls apart. This is my criticism is not on the basis of I think of being a Watsonian. I just like when books lie to me. Christ. Okay, listen. Um, What's your favorite book? The House of Leaves. What's your second favorite book? These books. Okay, what's your fifth favorite book? Um, fifth favorite book. Sorry, sixth. Sixth. <laughs> Sorry, there's one, two, three, four in the series, so six. you can't French. I think it's um, the Stone Sky trilogy. Okay, uh, we're we're just just gonna move oh, by on. Okay, Jemison. Okay, what's your ninth favorite book? Hey, how about what you... are you what are you looking for? Like, what what's the point of this? How many Mar- of these Mar- books Mar- are lying to you? A book that she knows uh... that isn't this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I get. It. I know uh... a bit about Acid Leaves, but I haven't read it. So, to be fair, that's not I can't spoil the book, but like um... I, I know the deal. Yeah. Okay. Um... Uh, I like Aeschylus's plays. I know those don't really lie to me. Is that what you want okay. out of this? Okay. Like, I don't know. I, I have a different thing. All right. And this might be my last thing, and then I might sign off and we come back. Who knows? Uh, in the cousins section, towards the end, mm-hmm. get a little exchange from between Carlisle and Mycroft about the Nobel Peace Prize, in which... Yeah! It's implied mm-hmm. in Mycroft's internal monologue that they wanted to award the Peace Prize to 9A. Uh, Liam, hold your applause. Uh, but they can't do it because Liam, sorry, because 9A is dead. Um, <laughs> oh. Oh, wow. That would have been really harsh. But... <laughs> uh, uh, there's a lot of discussion around this particular passage, especially when people are debating the exact physical reality of all of these supposed transformations and whether uh, there are some people who I, I generally count myself in the camp of there were actually three physical bodies and each one successively was Mycroft. There are people who say there was one body and it just had multiple personalities in it at different times. And the existence of Saladin is completely faked, and the existence of 9A is completely faked. And in these discussions, people will often point out that uh, we get no confirmation from Carlyle in this passage that 9A even exists. It's all supposition inside of Mycroft's internal model. In fact, throughout the book, no one, except for Vivian one time, openly implies the existence of 9A to anyone who is not 9A. That's not cr- true. I. That's not true. Uh, but also, like, we need two bodies, because Mycroft just dies. Dies Does off he? screen both yeah. times. There's an ear in everything. There's an ear. We have tons of evidence, and we just yeah, get I, more evidence. Again, I, I personally think that there is that no, no evidence died. that's compelling that there's only one body. But... Uh, this is it. Yeah, I think you need at least two, but really three. Yeah, yeah, at least two. Probably. Mycroft is nine A though. Then I don't think you do because presumably other people would be in on this nine A based. Yeah, that's that's the implication right? for a lot of this when you challenge with people openly addressing nine A or conversations where 
Minecraft and 9A talk to each other and other people participate in the conversation as though they are two different people. There's a lot of wishy-washy like, ah, but it's cover-ups or rewriting or just people know to treat Minecraft like he's uh, a system. It also like changes radically the interpretation of like, say the Kasala 9A scene. Like, yes, completely. Like it becomes that like Kosala is just weirded out with, by this experience of a system where like one of them is saying mm. the other one is dying. Like, but I see you here. What's happening? And everybody else yeah. is like pretty pretty okay. In fairness, that's entirely in character for Kosala. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty fair. But like, it just changes it entirely. It's uh, too bad that doesn't work out. That would be fun. Um, all of you, good luck hosting the show. I'll I'll be back God. real shortly. Okay. Sorry. Oh boy. Uh, hey, is this restriction going to continue? Okay, yeah, okay. I guess. What restriction? What restriction? Uh, okay. The Twitch. Stream. The Twitch stream. Yes. You're not yeah. going to leave the call, are you? No, Christ, I'm not. I'm going to leave you guys on. Okay. I'm going to go <laughs> to the restroom. Okay. Then I'll return. Okay. okay just checking. So uh, here's here's a here's a general question because mm-hmm. I feel like letting a general thing hang out as opposed to a specific thing while someone's out of the room might be more appropriate. Mm-hmm. Do you think this chapter is too okay. 21st century Western liberal for the actual world that it's created? Previously, um, I feel like there's a way to read it like that. Um, but this is like the wrong way to read it. Like what's happening is that the di- ways in which a jet is different from the world around him. A lot, a lot of ways, the way the twenty first century is different from the world. We're different from the Terragnata. Like jet values, discussion of religion, jet values, free discourse. Um, jet values is sort of like multiplicity of, of, of human experience and sort of non humanity. Um. Uh, and Jed has literally conquered the world and is reading his pronouncements of how the world will work, like from Medias as like the, the conqueror of the world. And like when when you see uh things like Papadelia saying uh they're going to be religion now, or Sniper heading a gender commission, or um the uh uh, endorsement of, of, of sexism as a, a valid way of being, you shouldn't understand them as the world like having this sort of um, revolution in understanding that they've come to a new, they've, they've accepted gender, they've accepted religion, they've accepted set sets. What you should think um, is that everybody else is going to be so fucking angry about this. It doesn't matter. People just stopped having opinions at some point. No, it's we only get like four weeks. We don't know. Yeah, we do get a little bit of interfacing with the crowd and a little bit of the public opinion, so to speak. It's really just people, yeah, getting mad at the humanist decision and then telling. Also, this is like several months. Oh yeah, it's like several months, but like it's it's not. We don't see the sort of like 
long-term what do you mean we get to see at the end when they go to space and they go to an unknown planet to meet <laughs> governor mojave in a scene that is totally yeah. real and not just mycroft's fabrication Oh, uh, that feels a conclusion. But even B, even if it was real, we actually that yeah, doesn't okay. tell us anything with a long term impact. On that scene, and then I'll hop out. Is it is written mm -hmm. in, in my personal like this is all opinion. That this book is never published in universe, so you don't really get to say like ah, it has to contain only things that could have existed at the time of publication. Instead, I'll say mm -hmm. this chapter. Seems like it was written as one of Mycroft's sort of hallucinatory episodes where he imagines something that may or may not have happened, how he imagines it would have gone. But in particular, this is him imagining what will it be like to be immortal and how will he experience that when people are able to call his soul out of books. And he's maybe been thinking that for the entire series, but this at this point it is very concrete possibility that he has to consider both because of Bridger's curse and because of the looming possibility of book immortality. And, and to be clear, you're saying this about the, the final, final section, final section. With the space, the final, the final section yeah. where we leave earth and in the opening to the chapter, this is referred to as and elsewhere and ever after yeah. ever after. Um, mm -hmm. I, Events of Ever After, by the way, really fun, yes, given the really previous great. two books, where it's like events uh, of bounded personal... time. Yeah. First, because of how bounded it is, <laughs> even this chapter, you it's, yes. to me, that's what got to me. Because I did not see what I what I would expect from Ever After. Like, I'd want, like, I don't know, 10-year estimation it's... things. But no, we just see... Yeah. Of some like specific limited portion of time. So unlike Martyr, I tend to be much more Watsonian in my analysis. And uh, that, that what I just described is my Watsonian ana analysis. But from a Doyleist perspective, I see yeah. this as Ada Palmer's almost promise to the reader that yes, things are somewhat on the right track. They, there are going to be ups and downs. There's going to be shakiness. There might be more wars. Maybe there are. Eventually, this is all going to work out, and the seeds will fly. The seeds have flown. The, the promise at the end of the previous book, this question of if you're there in the future, please reach back in time and let Mycroft know, and that le let, let me know too, that the seeds have flown if they have. And here... As Utopia expands out, as Utopia is being forced to expand out, ever, forever, in eternity, the seeds have flown, will always fly. It's beautiful. And with that, I take my leave. It's an extremely good ending. Goodbye. For a chapter I have many problems with, ends extremely strongly. Oh, are we on the ending now? We were talking Briefly. about... Uh, various things. Um, there's a comment about like how we should whether this chapter ends in a in a, a um, fabrication, a, Mycroft hallucination, imagination, and then before oh, that, there's a, a question about like does this chapter end in a very 21st century liberal way? Um,
like two totally different conversations that you two were having. Yeah. Well, I tried to start out with something general so you could be away from it and not miss too much of the specifics that we haven't gotten into yet. And then Harrell had one more thing they wanted to get into before leaving. Yeah, okay. Because I had to go. Um, so, now that Liam's back, can we talk about what I assume is Liam's favorite part? Well, Julia! I, oh, Julia, yeah. Yeah. What? So, like, there's a... There's a... <laughs> what? <laughs> That's just your response? No, I just... I don't know how to respond to the Julia thing. Um, you don't? Because it's, like, a lot, right? Because, um... So let's be clear. Let's summarize this real quick. Mm-hmm. We find out the Conclave is going to start allowing various kinds of discussion of religion, and they're going to figure out stuff about that along the way, because this chapter involves a lot of... We'll figure it out. Uh, but in order to make that happen, they need Julia to step down so that anyone else can be in charge who isn't Julia. And in order to do this, uh, a group of people approaches Julia. Um, Jed says, you step down from the Conclave, you will take up Madame's position of running her organization and, you know, be part of that criminal network, track down the people that Perry was working with, uh, fix them, bring them back into the fold to be productive and good, uh, and also stay away from Sniper. And there's a lot going on there. There's a lot I skimmed over. Yeah, I think the big question it raises is how long will it take Julia to find Casimir Perry? (laughs) (laughs) You're You're still on Casimir Perry's alive somewhere. Oh, he he for sure is. There's... uh, Unless... The author says the words to me, yes, Casimir Perry is actually dead. Uh, I will continue to believe in Casimir Perry. Okay, is Apollo Mojave dead? Real up in the air, actually. (laughs) Is Ondo dead? I don't know if anyone is proper dead. At the very moment the series ends, yes. Okay. So the person whose death you are actually doubting is just Casimir Perry because of Casimir Perry's previous two fake deaths. Mm-hmm. Yes. Not like a general doubt that people are dead. I, I do have that, but that's because of the resurrection stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. different. Does that count? Yeah. No, it's no. a different thing. Yes, I'm specifically skeptical that Casimir Perry is dead. Oh, God. And then we get that Cornell would have been a utopian. Uh... Which is weird. He he cared about his duty quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Cornell, great. so good. So extremely good. Yeah. Uh, we also get the reveal that Cornell Mason's not getting brought back anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. Like, you have to wonder about, like, okay, so there's a bunch of Gordians who violated the Sanctum Sanctorum who are just, like, around and alive, and also Jalu Gobreaker is also alive. Can we just, like, wait for a while before we bring Cornell back? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll hook up all the sensors so you're not being filially impious, Jehovah. Uh, we want to make sure that when he's brought back, we have all of the sensors up so we can maximize the, the use that we get out of bringing him back 
and not like making sure he doesn't try and destroy the Gordians again. <laughs> we we checked with the ghost and he said to wait. Yes, Jehovah. We really <laughs> Don't worry. Oh, it's it's sorry. Go sorry, do you need a minute? No, no, it was just an alarm. Okay, so there's that. Um, so Julia's gonna be put in charge of being Madame mm-hmm. uh, and doing the Madame things. Mm-hmm. Madame's creatures, the ones she actually created in the first place, will get to have a reservation mm-hmm. um, on the on the De La Tremouille, uh grounds, which is fun. Um, so they can live according to the way that Madame has set up their uh, their lives to be. Uh, and the addicts can be rehabilitated under a person as manipulative, philosophically interesting, hardcore into gender shenanigans, and just awful as Madame herself with Julia, which feels like the most Liam solution to this problem. I, I do love it. Did, did anyone ever doubt that? <laughs> Julia earned it. Earned it? Explain earned it. She is the person best suited to having the philosophy brothel, which, as I understand, is mostly about yelling at people about religion and gender until they agree with you. Um, and since <laughs> Julia is the best senseier, she should be the best philosophy brothelist. Plus, it comes back, and it's nice to have a little connection to the past now that everyone gets to argue about religion, too. Yay. Uh, it's also fun how all of this is tied to and never under any circumstances interact with Sniper again, ever. Yeah. Uh, which is, like, an acknowledgement of how, while in some sense rewarding Julia because you need someone who's kind of terrible and bad, in all these respects, in order to do the Madame thing, because otherwise it won't work. Uh, I wonder if, like, part of the reason why we have that long conversation about, like, that's implied to be about fans in um, with Sniper and Nine is because the other example of fan culture we have is Julia. Oh, God. She has the posters. She really likes, like, specifically in the episode... The poster with the marionette doll joints. Mm Mm-hmm. And then also the yeah. um, when Carlos has to take her in, um, in like the first book, there's like sniper posters, like so she's the backgrounds on her on her computer. She's a huge fan. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that, but it is. Uh, I bet Sniper has rethought his relationship to his fan base. I mean, not really. I, I'm pretty sure some of the sex aspects are going to be deprioritized for a while. Oh, this yes. is also really interesting. Sniper also, like, I forgot. Sniper is, like, also a prostitute. This is, like, simply not mentioned. It's mentioned. Let's, let's take a minute to look at the scene itself and the way it's set. So we've got Julia on one side. We've got Jed with Dominic in his lap, with Mirabeau there, mm-hmm. with um, Papa there, with Desi O'Callaghan there. Mm-hmm. With Mycroft with a walker there, but not using it at the moment because trying to put it in behind. Then we've got Sniper there in the back being held by Occam and Leslie. Uh, so we've it's, got uh, Sniper sitting to the left is Leslie, to the right is a typer, and behind them scowling is Occam. Thank you. So, 
let's take a brief minute to look at this environment. We've got Mycroft, who is now, for, an ex for a long period of time after this, it's not clear how long, needing a mobility device in order to get around properly. Mm -hmm. um, Thanks, Suyun. We've got... What? Thanks, Suyun. Uh, we've got Dominic, who has been Gordianed uh, to the point where he can't meaningfully interact with the rest of the world in most important respects. Mm -hmm. um, we've got Sniper, who has had issues previously of muscle atrophy, though those got better, um, but also severe permanent psychological injury from the captivity with Julia. This is a very interesting thing to present before us in one place after the Trojan War. Because... Uh, we also have Desi with a cane. We also have Desi with a cane, thank you. Um, though that's less relevant. Uh, in Homer, the actual Homeric texts, injury is only presented in certain particular ways. If someone is wounded in battle, they either die almost immediately afterwards, usually immediately, but sometimes they'll get like a speech. Or they withdraw from the battle or keep fighting, but the wound is basically dealt with or ignored and is never brought up again and is not relevant. There is never anywhere in Homer or any of the other ancient sources of, it, of that kind a reference to someone who has been permanently, meaningfully disabled or with a lingering injury because of war and conflict. When we know that when you actually have war and conflict, wounds and the lasting nature of them is something very important. People who lose limbs, people who lose their sight or their hearing as a result of the war and are left different afterwards and marked by that experience afterwards. There is psychological damage, as Jonathan Shea, author of Achilles in Vietnam and Odysseus in America, will point out there is a lot of psychological damage in the Iliad and the Odyssey but you don't see physical damage. But what you're having here is a wide array of options there. You have mobility impairment, you have sensory impairment, you have psychological damage uh, that in some senses has changed each of these persons permanently and importantly in a way that is in, like kind of having them all together, a very strong and strict contrast to Homer, which I actually think is really interesting and beautiful. Um, I sort of assume the reason that because Desi doesn't have a cane until this moment, we don't have a mention of it. So I sort of assume that whatever reason why Julia is not a triumvir anymore is why Desi has a cane. Oh, that's that's a read, I guess. But I mean, yeah, it's old. interesting, um, especially like in light of the previous chapter with all of the disability stuff there, um, where it's like, okay, minors with this, 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 and this disability problem. Uh, we've you you get tracker access back in greater priority because the tracker is useful for you in particular mm -hmm. uh, in a way that it's not for everybody else. Otherwise, otherwise in this chapter, uh, the Mitsubishi kids getting access to uh, their full array of senses by getting back the Cater device, uh, which is Very a plot thread I didn't expect to come back. It came That's, back. It came and back. Very funny. Um, it's very funny and very weird. Forever. It's going to be so good. Um, um, all of these people are now being, you know, helped out or restored, but still having the problem always be there and never, and in some cases not having it be 
gone, not having the everything undone and unhappened to them. Um, which is, like, important from a perspective of showing that that's part of war, as opposed to you're back or you're not. Um, and having, you know, Kosala consistently having the language problem uh, is also part of that as well. Mm-hmm. For now, it's implied Kosala is going to be fine. Yeah, and Mycroft will probably get out of the vertigo, and they are starting to work on fixing Dominic, which, by the way, I'm also assuming they're taking their sweet time fixing Dominic so that Dominic doesn't murder Carlisle, Sniper, and Julia. Because, <laughs> oh, like, yeah. that's going to be a hard sell to keep Dominic from murdering those three people, right? Yeah. Like, they'll succeed because, like, Jed will probably order him not to, but it's not non trivial. <laughs> they probably have to, like, be careful that. Uh, Dominic doesn't touch any of them, right? Because if Dominic ever touches these people, Dominic will recognize them and try to like strangle them then and there. Uh, he uh, so Dominic does not currently know, uh, to near as I can tell, about who actually kidnapped Sniper and how Sniper got out. So yeah. only oh, Sniper right, yeah. would be on, would be only on that. Only Sniper job. would be on the can't touch. Yeah. But, but, you know, given everything, I don't think Sniper is particularly interested in having Dominic touch it either, so... Yeah. I... such a wise decision. Um... <laughs> Getting touched by Dominic must be quite an experience. Uh, How many people... This, this sounds like this chapter causes a lot of argument, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, oh, yeah. like, I... The way I view this series... Like, is it a happy ending? Is it good? Does it make sense? Is this, that, or the other choice for a given hive something that's reasonable? Uh, well, that, that's, like, the point of these books, though, right? <laughs> to various extents. Like, this is definitely a book series that has had room for argument and interpretation in a lot of different respects. But this book, more than the others, feels like we're getting a lot of just the thing the author believes at various points in time. And if you compare certain arguments that various characters make to the things Ada Palmer has put on her blog, you will see suspicious overlap between, say, Carlyle's comments on the trolley problem and her comments on the trolley problem, as an arbitrary example. Oh, really? Um, problem I thought was... that was uniquely terrible a take in this book. <laughs> the trolley problem happens like Constantly. What are they talking about? Also specifically <laughs> in this book, right? No, no. Forget the book. Just in reality. Like, mm. it, it isn't the case that you never run into trolley problem-like scenarios. Yeah. Every healthy person at a hospital that needs more than one transplant is doing a trolley problem. Uh, what was he Sorry. Like, to some degree, uh, and there's certainly some, like, um, things which I think she thought would spark arguments and instead of taking it as, like, clearly the services are just, like, you, there's no downstairs system whatsoever. And so they, she feels the need to, like, include a big argument to the services system. Um, what was very funny um, was watching people take 9A's commentary on censorship early in the book about how, like, free speech is bad, 
seeing people online point to that as an example of like, yeah, this is why free speech is a problem. And her having to see these, see that she's tagged in them and be like, not directly contradict it, but be like, <laughs> or, you know, maybe it's a problem of how this, that, and the other thing might make people think that free speech is really the problem. <laughs> Oh. And, like, try and be very diplomatic and very reasonable, and also you can see, like, this is someone making a real effort to be diplomatic and reasonable. <laughs> I would actively think you were lying to me about that if it weren't for the fact that we had that happen in the podcast channel, where we got to that chapter, and someone came on and was like, yeah, I love how this book explained that free speech sucks. <laughs> from a historian of censorship who talks extensively about the value of Voltaire and people who break taboos in conversation <laughs> it's even at the fun. time it feels like a bad read <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, it's 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 all very fun. I think that's that's partially true, but like I I think we do get more of the author's opinions in this book than ever than before. Um but like the way I more clearly at least. Like I'm pretty sure some of those Mycroft rants are just you know <laughs> things that Mycroft wants to share and talk to us about are things that the author wants to share and talk to us about. Yeah. In the way uh, that like Victor Hugo does. Yeah. Um, but uh, I've always uh, the in talk about how she built the world building. You know, there's an essay where she says talks about how um, she built it so that it would split as many people down as many lines as she could think of. And the um, except nobody wants to be a mason for some reason. Really, consistently the lowest population group among self-identified Terragnota fans. It's so surprising. Did they miss the bits about the the year of argument to get in? No, it just comes up a lot. Uh, in any case, uh, she tried to split these questions along with the lines she could think of. And um, sorry, I think white law might actually be the uh, least popular, uh, just because we don't get white laws for so long and they don't matter. Uh. I, at one point, you one of you asked me to get a white loft. I think that was the whole thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would fail. Uh, yeah, no, you were right on the money that one. Um, what's gonna say? The I would expect the ending of this book to also fulfill that. I want to make people argue a lot. Premise. So one of the things that has actually happened is when you look at people who end up having diverse opinions about this ending, it's not like people go in, this ending is good or bad camps. It mostly ends up being people who like this thing that happens at the end and hate this other thing that happens at the end. Yeah. Like, there are people who love the cousins thing that I think is really stupid. There are people who hate what happens to the, that there continue to be servicers and hate what happens to Utopia, which I'm, like, extremely pro. Uh, you know, I describe it in very negative terms, but I think the 
the idea of forcing Utopia to live up to its ideal that this is always more and for the future and never for us to rest. Like, this is, in fact, the ultimate encapsulation of that in a way that I think is appropriate, beautiful, and also I accords with, you know, ideals of servicerhood that I care about and value and also was debating switching to Utopian based on that ending. Um, but other people are like, yeah, this is a program. This is genocide. This is an atrocity. And, like... This will destroy the hive, and it is morally unconscionable. And I don't think it probably. Oh, is it genocide? But it's what they want. It accomplishes genocide. their goals. Probably a pogrom. Um, there's a reason I use but, pogrom instead of genocide. There's a yeah, uh, yeah. Um, Which also is like an extremely loaded term, especially in the context of like utopians are space Jews, which. You know, I was very skeptical of until I got to the slash. I was like, yeah, utopians are space Jews. Well, that. That bit is troubling, you know. Yes, it's extremely troubling. <laughs> it's really not great, but it's making them live up to their ideal, and I and I care about that. Um, the thing I got to me was <laughs> was the war, um, and like, yeah, the the, the way in which like the, the the way in which you describe the arguments splitting does make sense. That's how that's how tearing not a split, right? People who are like fans of the book hate and love different parts of the setting. Yep, and that's sort of like joined away as well, um, and end up having a lot of self identification with the things that they care about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the it's there's a classic uh, meme. You know, uh, comparing the Harry Potter houses to the Terra Ignota hives. Yeah, uh, where it's you know uh, the the list of all the Terra Ignota hives. You know, J.K. Rowling, uh, a fool, uh, protagonist. Evil, smart, uh, kind, and then you know, Ada Palmer, an intellectual, uh, caps lock, uh, Hufflepuff, <laughs> uh, landlord, and cat, uh, bureaucrat, prude, prude. uh, rationalist, <laughs> yeah, um, Myers Briggs fan, <laughs> um. Uh, nationalist and uh, jock. That's it. Yeah. Um, and you know, people resonate with the hives real hard. It's one of the things about the book that is kind of consistently the most sticky. The thing that lasts with people and their uh, thing that they kind of keep thinking about afterwards, the hives and self-identification concepts and the legal systems around them and how they operate and work. Like, that's one of the things that people really latch onto and really care about long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, but people tend to, like, really like certain hives and really not like others. Mm-hmm. Like, I really don't like the Mitsubishi. Not That has like, never I, come up once on this show, I think. Yeah, this is news. It's not dislike of the Mitsubishi. It's not like. It's, I really don't get why people are so gung-ho about being landlords. Uh, I think... Natural beauty and whatnot is great, but I don't know that you have to make a megacorporation after liking trees. Well, I I think most of the Mitsubishi we see on the Terrible Server are Greenpeace, right? Yeah, hardcore environmentalists. Um, and that makes total oh, sense. So not, not the real Mitsubishi. Exactly! The Greenpeace are the real Mitsubishi. This is a whole thing. No, they're not. They showed up two months ago 
and have a whole different a set generation of ago. A generation ago. Uh, and beliefs that accords very, very compatible well. beliefs. Yeah, it, it does make sense, actually. Um, I firmly believe that if I buy some big reservation and then I excavate it to replace it with high-density housing and oil refineries, the Greenpeace people are going to have a problem with me. Hang on, I... I hmm. You're making Mitsubishi sound a lot more appealing than they are in the book. Uh, <laughs> I do like high-density housing. This That's is my favorite kind. Specifically uh, promoted for in the Mitsubishi thing because, like, you get more votes the uh, the more economically productive the thing you own is. And now we see the Mitsubishi changed, and the change is like um, apparently it's simply the amount of money you make per acre. Political capital, like, not not money. Uh, the vote, like voting power and influence. No, no, no. What I mean is that like. The amount of votes you got was about the a number amount of money you made per acre as people charge the value more of the land specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which like is rents, but also like uh, a nice chunk of rainforest with no one living on it still counts. But like, but you it know what counts? More but like, it's that? much less than the uh, is if you no. comet building and what no, makes no, up this the is difference. exactly what do you mean? Is, no, that that's that's just text. Uh, and the thing that it's made also the, text that the Mitsubishi really care about really good nature preserves and making sure that they endure and are kept and their voting law res- uh, recognizes and respects that. That's uh, Greenpeace nonsense. That's the Greenpeace thing. The thing that that's been in Mitsubishi for that, a while. Uh, for like a generation. Like, so there's some influence, right? Um, but like when the Greenpeace joined, it's noted that like in terms of per acre votes, there's like almost nothing in the Greenpeace thing. But they own so <clears throat> much land that you actually get a huge chunk of votes. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Uh, but the changes that have been made that also were actually there last book, yeah. the book just didn't tell us about them in, in more like sharks eating bananas level problems. You just didn't tell us what the reforms were so we couldn't have an opinion then so you could have the trick now of, oh, guess, there, guess it's time for you to have an opinion. Uh, is doing a bunch of what we would now call 21st century, like, good urbanism logic of it's not just a function of high rents because, you know, the, not just the value of the land, but also the productivity of the land, the good uh, outcomes of the land um, to ensure that people are not just building housing and then extracting as much wealth as they can from it, but trying to make that housing or other property work for the people there. So you might create art uh, installations in an apartment building or put in a park so that the people on that land are more productive or happier, and that will translate to greater political influence. I think the headline here is that the Mitsubishi have an incentive to lower rents. The other headline here is Dominic was right, and putting him in charge of the Mitsubishi was completely correct. <laughs> Did anyone just... have that in their predictions list? No, I didn't. <laughs> um, like the rest of the things are nice and sort of like, but like the headline things that people were willing to kill each other over rents, and now they the rents will be lower. 
the rest or is the, sort at of least a, the rents will not have an incentive to go higher. Yeah, and the the rest is sort of like like a bribe to make sure people like uh, will will be okay with them until they like manage to lower the rents. I can hear the cynicism in my voice when I say that. Oh, you you can hear it now. Yeah, is this like when you got a new mic and all of a sudden <laughs> you could tell that there was a difference? A gift, an apology. Is that is that better than a bribe? I don't know. Mea uh, culpa, mea culpa, mea maxime culpa. Yeah, it could be that. Um, um, I guess I have a tendency to sort of read real politics into things. I mean, there's large parts of this book where you're supposed to be doing that, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, so, the church war. <laughs> yeah. Church war. Can we talk about uh, the worst reveal in this entire chapter? What? It's called Terra Ignata because of the war crimes, actually. I mean, I don't think that's why. It's about undiscovered country generally. And by the yeah. way, is there something clanging? There is. Uh, it's my radiator. I can't fix it. Okay. Have you tried bleeding it? What? Have you tried bleeding it? What does that mean? Where you, like, let the gas out. I don't... I don't know how to do that. I I can't describe it to you in podcast form. <laughs> and shouldn't. Yeah, that's pretty fair. Uh, I'll maybe try that later, but like maybe not because I, I, I I'm gonna rent and only get the fins. Oh, so it's it's not an actual radiator. It's like one of the electric heat pumpers, not heat. No, pump. I think it's a radiator. No, I get like water through these metal fins. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna move away from radiator talk and mm-hmm. move back to Terra Ignata talk. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. What have we not covered that I really want to talk about? Only a tenth of humanity is on reservations. I really thought that way more of humanity was on reservations and everyone was just deeply self-centered in this book. I also held that belief. Uh, uh, I think 10% so is pretty high. I was kind of surprised. 10% is, is pretty high. But like I, I also thought right, I, I hoped that people that tend to like a majority of all people just don't live on the <laughs> just don't live in, in these people. In a high, yeah. In a high I thought level. it was gonna be like 70% of the world who are in reservations and they've just been having their own life happen <laughs> while the hives, insular as they are, pretend they're the only ones that matter or count. Yeah. That would have been real fun. Um uh then we get like uh Oh the afterlife. Uh, um, they make noises about afterlife happening, but like, well, 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 more than that, they're gonna bring back everyone over a long yeah. enough period of time, and they're gonna try and start with maybe, maybe they'll do Cornell Mason with the resurrection potion, or maybe they'll use their tech, uh, to bring back of all people, shock, real cool shock, uh, Mercer Marty. Mycroft's torturous murder of Mercer Marty might be the missing link to give humanity a leg up on immortality and bringing back everyone who has ever died. Because mm-hmm. we know See? so much about them. It was the Providence! Providence! <laughs> the billiard balls have been struck. It's such a good moment of like, we get a couple references to like the like Mycroft's 
and the murders in various oblique ways. And here at the end, where he didn't stop a war from happening and there was that whole catastrophe, there might have been a bigger purpose to it after all. But of course, also, we get the exchange between Carlisle and Mycroft, that is mostly Mycroft's own head, which Corel talked about. Mm-hmm. 9A's dead. They don't give Nobel Prizes posthumously. Actually, they now have... The Nobel Prize has in, broken every rule that it has on the awarding criteria, and at this point has awarded something posthumously, because the Nobel Prize Committee didn't notice that someone died while they were deliberating. Oh my god, um, that's unfortunate. Ooh. Yeah, the Nobel Prize Committee is actually terrible at their jobs. Anyway. It's real fun. Um, for example, they give out a prize every year that's not a Nobel Prize. Uh, is it economics or peace? Nobel Prize in economics is not real. Yeah. Uh, Nobel Prize in economics was not established by Alfred Nobel. It was established by the Swedish Na- National Bank in memory of Alfred Nobel, which is different from all the rest of the other prizes. Listen, but it's awarded by the Nobel Prize Committee and called the Nobel real. Prize in economics. Like, it exists. But it is not at the same status as the rest of the Nobel Prizes, but it's treated as if it is. Okay, wait. Um, that's Im- I think that the thing you just said is impossible. It is necessarily the same status as the Nobel Prizes because it's treated as such. Well, he's it was not there. treated as such by Alfred Nobel, who did yeah, not. Why do, why do we that care? Happen. That's not. That's not. You don't have a Nobel Prize in mathematics either. Uh, sure. The yeah, rumor there is that Alfred Nobel's wife cheated on him with a mathematician. Uh, <laughs> like we, we this is we, a long-standing uh, rumor. Strong the, is the like the trademark on the phrase Nobel Prize. I could start a Nobel Prize in mathematics. I'll give it to I don't know someone important first, and then people who don't matter after. The the corresponding thing in mathematics, the field model, which is different for a couple of reasons. It has um, an age limit, right? Uh, yeah, it's like 40. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah, it's nuts. Um, it's because it specifically was, was first given to encourage young mathematicians, but <laughs> it's not that now. It's very fun. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so the Nobel Prize Committee does not award prizes posthumously. Asterisk. Um, and so therefore they cannot give it to 9A. And this causes Mycroft to think about the nature of Providence in a new and different way than he has before. And he talks about Zadig. Yes. I should have finished that book. Uh, It's super good. I like it more than Candide. Um, The section that Mycroft talks about is the penultimate chapter of Zadig, or the Book of Fate by Voltaire, um, in which the main character Zadig, who has been an important uh, political figure in politics in an oriental country, who got exiled because of uh, jealousy and rivalry um, traverses a lot of the rest of the world and talks to a bunch of people about philosophy and convinces them to be better about philosophy um, and do things that are better for humanity. For example, he gets uh, convinces an entire country to stop doing widow burning uh, in a way that is very clearly Voltaire talking about both real practices in the existing world and also the nature of cultural practice in general. Um, eventually, towards the end of the book, Zadig runs into a mysterious guy in an inn who does a bunch of weird stuff. And it's described, you know, he burns down a man's house, he murders a child, uh, all this other stuff. Um, Fun fact, this chapter of Zadig in particular is adapted from the Quran. 
what the the whole story uh, that is that his whole thing and you know the guy going around doing a bunch of weird things that seem bad but in fact are for a good purpose later on that's all a story in the quran about i think moses and like this weird sage guy who isn't named in the quran but is later like identified as a weird quasi angelic semi immortal sage guy who's a fixture in like islamic you know apocryphal mythology kind of stuff uh, it's wild. It's wild. I didn't know it was Quranic when I read Zadig, and then I learned a bunch about the Quran like a month afterwards, and I'm like, holy shit! The ending is Zadig! <laughs> What's going on here? That's so cool! How did Voltaire know about the... Oh, the Quran was first translated into French shortly before this time, so he was doing a commentary thing there. It's like, oh, that's really cool. Anyway, um, Zadig, after watching this person do all these Ter seemingly terrible things for ultimately good ends, the guy reveals himself as the angel Jezrad um, and describes basically how fate and providence work and Zadig argues with him repeatedly back and forth. They have like three or four exchanges back and forth in which Jezrad says this, that, and the other thing and then Zadig goes but why does it have to be this way? Why does it have to be this way? Why can't it be this other way? And the angel keeps knocking him back uh, in various ways, kind of in reminiscence of uh, God's response to Job in the Bible. Um, like, okay, wait, God's response, God's response to Job in the Bible, is it like that, or is it an argument? Uh, God's response to Job is like what Jezrad's response to Zadig is. Okay. Um, so, and, the, and the passage that's, you know, adapted here, you know, uh, why do you question that which should be worshipped? Like, that kind of stuff. Okay. Okay. So, so Zadig wins the argument, fundamentally speaking. So, the angel gets the last extended paragraph and explanation. And then, as the chapter is ending, Zadig says, but, and then uh, doesn't say anything more, and we get the description of the angel leaving and ascending back up to heaven. Uh, and never responding to the but, and Zadig never expanding on the but. And that but is the basis of this book, and this expl an ex explanation here where... So Providence might have a plan for it to all...